everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can also search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. Uh, or you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Austin Glidden. You can find me on Instagram at Austin Glidden. Um, all one word. You can also find me on Letterboxd. Just search for Austin Glidden. I mean, I'm around. So just come hang out. I would love to chat with you all. Also, if you get a chance, please, you know, subscribe, rate, review, do anything you can for the website or for the podcast here, wherever you're listening. Help us out. It does help us out for you to do those simple things. I appreciate it. So uh, today's a really fun episode. The first thing I want to say is we have a guest today. It's Greg Sorvig. He works with the Heartland Film Festival. It's a place that I actually interned uh, for as a short films programmer back in 2013, where apparently I met Greg for the first time. I do not remember this, but we talk about it a little bit here. And uh, that'll be a really fun conversation because we'll be able to talk. We'll kind of pull the curtain back. A little bit on how film festivals work. And Greg gives us some inside baseball news uh, on some films that are going to be making it uh, into the Heartland Film Festival, including Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch and a bunch of other big movies. Uh, He talks about them. We talk about them. Of course, he's seen them and I haven't. So it's really fun. You should definitely check it out. And as you're listening, you should try to keep note, take note or whatever. Uh, if you're able to, not if you're driving, of course, but if you're able to, uh, take note of some of these movies. Keep an eye out for them. If you can make it to Heartland, definitely see them there. Get your tickets. Uh, if not, then uh, definitely keep an eye out for them at your local theaters or uh, on streaming services as time goes on. But make sure you check out a trailer or something. Get yourself hyped. There's a lot of cool movies coming out yet this year. So another fun thing we're going to do first, though, before we get to Greg... I am. Uh, I got Universal sent me uh, a screener for uh, Dear Evan Hansen. I'm going to cover that right before we talk to Greg. Uh, so that's a 2021 movie. Um, I think I say this uh, for that segment as well. But um, yeah, I, I get. I often get screeners on the Wednesday before they come out, which is the day after my episodes come out. So I always end up releasing the movie um, like the Tuesday after they come out, but it also gives you guys a chance to see some of them. You can get my thoughts on if you haven't seen them, it will hopefully either persuade you to or not to whatever you feel about them. uh, It'd be good. So uh, I'll talk about Dear Evan Hansen, which is a new movie came out last Friday. I'm also starting the uh, under the radar marathon, or as I called it, the Nick Peticcio appreciation marathon. Because, uh, as I said in the last episode, Nick uh, sent us a message on Instagram. He's the first person ever to suggest that we watch certain movies. So uh, he's not the first person ever to contact us. We get feedback often about people liking certain episodes or, you know, feeling the same or different about certain movies. And it's always great. But what Nick did is he's like, hey, I would love to hear you talk about this. No one talks about this movie. So he asked us to do um, The Beast of War, which I cover on this episode. Uh, but I went ahead and uh, jumped in and did a marathon I've been wanting to do anyways, and I just threw that in. It's the Under the Radar Marathon. It's not necessarily obscure movies or un- like particularly unique movies. It doesn't have to have any kind of qualification. It's just stuff I never hear people talk about. Or you know, just stuff that I would consider under the radar. If you're a true cinephile, maybe you've heard of all these, and that's fine. I had never heard of The Beast of War. Of course, I'd heard of all these others because they're on my list, like I made it. 
Um, and I've seen most of them, honestly. I had 25 on my list, and I think there were only like four I hadn't seen before, but I saw them so long ago, I don't remember. So I wanted to revisit them. Long story short, uh, Nick gave me that motivation. And so I appreciate you, Nick. Thank you so much. Uh, so I, I'm going to be talking about The Beast of War, but first I'm going to talk about a Pedro Almodovar film, the Spanish filmmaker. It's called Bad Education. This might have been the first Almodovar film I actually ever saw. I remember seeing a trailer for it. I remember when it finally came out on video, I saw it at a Blockbuster, and I'm pretty sure I just outright bought it, like there was a used copy of it or something. So I probably saw it in 2005, maybe even as late as 2006. But I remember really enjoying the film. Uh, but I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I've literally never heard anyone talk about uh, Bad Education. And I'm not talking about the Hugh Jackman 2015 movie. 2004, Spanish film, uh, starring Gael Garcia Bernal. I had never heard anybody ever talk about it. And I really liked this film back then, so I wanted to revisit it. Both because last Saturday was Pedro Almodovar's birthday, so happy birthday to him. But it's also, I'm considering it an under-the-radar, so it's kind of a twofer, right? So we're going to go ahead and jump into that now so I can save us some time because uh, I'm sure all of this is going to take plenty of time. Uh, but anyways, I'm going to jump into Bad Education and uh, we'll see what you guys think. All right, everybody, we're going to be starting with our Under the Radar Marathon. The first film I'm going to talk about is Bad Education from 2004, written and directed by uh, a man who just had his uh, birthday last Saturday. This is the Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar. Love me some Almodovar. The cast is Gil Garcia Bernal and a great cast, including many Almodovar regulars. I don't want to butcher their names. And quite frankly, many of you probably wouldn't know their names. Go check them out. Go to imdb.com. Just look up the cast. You might recognize several of them, especially if you've seen other Almodovar films. But Gil Garcia Bernal is kind of the name that's, that kind of uh, uh, sticks out, I guess. The release date was March 19th, 2004 in Spain, but it didn't get to the U.S. shores until February 11th, 2005. It had a budget of $5 million and a box office worldwide of $40.3 million. You can also stream it on HBO Max right now. And uh, that is where I watched it. It is the uncut version, the NC-17 version. It is uh, great. Actually, uh, and I might touch on this some more later, but uh, this is the first time I've ever watched the NC-17 original version because the only version I had seen prior to this was a rated R uh, version that I found and bought at Blockbuster um, <laughs> uh, because I'd seen the trailer and thought it was cool and it was like really cheap used there. So I remember I bought it. And uh, I remember there's a there's a point where a one man performs oral sex on another man. Of course, it's simulated, um, and but there's just this like huge blur circle over the head. Uh, and I remember that, but I didn't even like think anything of it at the time until later, and I realized it was uh, censored. Anyways, uh, bad education. Almodovar's bad education. Two children, Ignacio and Enrique, no love in the movies and fear in religious school at the beginning of the 1960s. Father Manolo, director of the school and its, pref and its professor of literature, is witness to and part of these discoveries. The three are followed through the next few decades, their reunion marking life and death. Uh, this is pretty vague, huh? 
So, uh, you know, after failing to come up with a synopsis that was spoiler-free, I admittedly copied and pasted the one from Letterboxd. I was uh, doing some research for the film and saw the opening paragraph to Roger Ebert's review that spoke to why I didn't feel comfortable writing my own synopsis or even building on an existing one. Ebert said, I was attempting to describe the plot of Bad Education, and it was quicksand, and I was sinking fast. You and I have less than a thousand words to spend together discussing this fascinating film, and not only would the plot take up half of that, but, you know, if I were by some miracle to succeed in making it clear, that would only diminish your pleasure. And that's the end of the quote, but I think that's really true, and that's kind of the struggle that I had trying to write it, because it is very complex. And like Ebert, I was spending way too much time on a synopsis without really being able to talk much about the film and anything else, you know. So, you know, you can watch the film and you can see the simplicity on the surface, but doing so there's it's doing so much more underneath. Bad Education is not a rare piece of cinema uh, or, you know, some obscure foreign film. It was actually made by one of, if not the, most known Spanish filmmakers in the last 30 years, Pedro Almodovar. So, you know, personally, I normally hear people bring up you know, women on, uh, women on the verge of a nervous breakdown or tie me up, tie me down, all about my mother, talk to her, or any of his, you know, new films that have come out in the last 10 years. But Bad Education seemed to be the black sheep of the collection, earning an NC-17 rating and fighting with the limited release because of it. It was only released in 106 venues, uh, and uh, in the U.S., that is. And, you know, this was uh, is a wide release, but it grossed $5.2 million dollars. Now, though it made its budget back in U.S. box office, uh, you know, honestly, not that, you know, many foreign films come here and they do worse than that, okay? But for Amado- for an Amadovar film, that release was, you know, a the, put it this way, Talk to Her came out a year before Bad Education and it grossed nearly twice as much money. But Bad Education opened the Cannes Film Festival that year Uh, And it was the first French film ever to do so. And critically, it was largely praised by the vast majority, seen as a return to some of Almodovar's earlier films that were much darker, such as Matador from 1986, great film, by the way, and Law of Desire, 1987, which I still have yet to see. But as for me, I love this film, and there are a few reasons why, so let's get into them. Now, first, Bad Education earns its NC-17 rating for its depiction of homosexuality, specifically the gay sex between two men. And there's actually an oral sex scene that I mentioned earlier between these two men, and it was blurred out in this big, super big, like, blur circle over over these guys. It was super funny in the rated R version that we had in the U.S., and this was actually the only version I had seen up to now, again, as I mentioned earlier. So... You know, it's clearly simulated, and it's really no more graphic than what we see in heterosexual couples do in movies, you know, Uh, but whatever. Anyways, you know, for as far as we've come with the depiction of homosexuality across American media, we have so much further to go because, you know, our capitalist media creators are aiming for the widest audience in order to bring in the largest financial return. So we get films tailored toward the people, you know, with heteronormal... heteronormative behaviors. Easy for me to say today, goodness gracious. Now, you know, this makes sense to me in context that a studio would want to aim for the widest audience. I get it in the context. But what happened is we get, you know, what happens is we get films 
about the LGBTQ plus community, and they're washed in a heteronormative gloss so that they are digestible by the masses. But what I love about Amadovar is he does not shy away from making films about gay and trans people and flaunting it unabashedly. There is no question, no wink, no nod, just the characters being themselves, and it is so refreshing. Bad Education is an exemplar of this, and it makes films like this special to me, even though the characters aren't necessarily role models, so to speak, but they are real, and I love it. And I have some friends in the LGBTQ plus community who talk about, you know, loving filmmakers like John Waters and, you know, someone like Almodovar, because even if the characters aren't them, they see more of themselves in these characters more than they do with a lot of the wide release films. Mexican-born actor and lead in this film, Gail Garcia Bernal, had to be able to uh, do a convincing Spanish accent before Pedro Almodovar would allow him to, uh, you know, get this role or roles, you know, depending on how you look at it uh, in the movie. Uh, Bernal also had, you know, to master Spanish body language and so on. So he took flamenco lessons to help him do that. He also studied the films of Barbara Stanwyck, which I thought was really interesting. And, uh, you know, Spanish camp icon Sarah Mat uh, Montiel. Montel, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Anyways, uh, you know, as well as Almodovar's previous leading ladies like Carmen Maura uh, and uh, Victoria Abril. Uh, but Bernal has also noted Elaine Delon's sexually ambiguous, ambiguous Ripley in the, uh, in the film Purple Noon from 1960. Purple Noon, of course, being the original film uh, to the talented Mr. Ripley, which was the American remake or readaptation, however you want to see it. They're both based on the same book. But Bernal, you know, put the work in, and he's fantastic here. I, I loved him from the beginning. I think the first film I'd seen him in maybe was Itu Mama Tambien, and then I went back and I watched, or not went back really, but I watched, you know, Motorcycle Diaries, and I just started watching all these films with him in him, and I just really, really liked him. And uh, he is absolutely great here. I think I probably saw a trailer with him in it and decided to watch the film. Is probably what happened at that point in my life. But I honestly kept trying to remember if he was Mexican or Spanish watching this because, you know, I was certain he was Mexican. But from my American non-Spanish speaking perspective, I could not tell the difference between his accent and the other Spanish native actors' accents. Uh, man, he's so good. Bernal plays Ignacio, uh, a.k.a. Angel. Uh, who is, uh, Angel is his stage name, and, uh, you know, he's an old Catholic school friend of Enrique, played by, uh, uh, oh God, Fele, I think it's Fele, I don't know, I'm going to say that, Fele Martinez, but Enrique has since become a filmmaker uh, in the film, and the two are reunited when Angel comes to get some work. Angel gives Enrique a film script partially based on their time in Catholic school, and Enrique gets pulled through the painful story, as do we. You know, I refuse to tell more about the film because, as I mentioned earlier, I will not only butcher the story uh, and waste way too much time, uh, but also it's just something you should just experience. And, uh, you know, the important thing is Angel and Enrique are old friends, and the story begins with them reuniting. Fele Martinez, Javier uh, Camera, I'm trying, guys. Uh, Daniel Jimenez Cacho, and... 
I hope you're having as a great time listening to me try to do this. And Luis Homar, there you go. That's the best I can do. Uh, all these four actors basically are fantastic as well. All of the performances I thought were very good. Uh, Cacho plays. Uh, the aforementioned priest I mentioned in the synopsis, and I thought his performance stood out in a good way. Kamada was uh, uh, always a joy to watch as well. Um, Kamada, as I said. And then overall, uh, you know, like I said, the performances were spot on. I absolutely love them. Second, the film is uh, and its characters were dedicated to telling a touchy story, uh, you know, for as entertaining and seemingly convoluted as the film can seem, underneath its surface is a lot of pain and truth. And the film addresses the sexual abuse per, uh, perpetuated by the Catholic Church. And we learn very early on that Ignatio was abused by a priest. And, uh, you know, Catholicism in Spain, being different from that in the U.S., uh, you know, based on my limited understanding at least, you know, Catholicism there is a much bigger deal. It's far more prominent and ingrained. For example, only 20% of Americans are Catholic, but 60% uh, or 22% of Americans, I don't remember what I just said, but are Catholic, but 60% of Spanish citizens are. And so looking at percentages, not just numbers, because of course we are a bigger country, but looking at the percentages, uh, it is more than half of the people. It's actually more than we have Christians here, identified Christians, because it's like 55% or something. So it's a big deal there. So this film was not only tackling the injustice of the Catholic Church, but also addressing a glaring sin in kind of maybe what Amadovar saw as the culture that was uh, that he was surrounded by. And in the U.S., you know, we see a film like Spotlight, and we think those aspects of Catholicism are horrible. But it's not so much an integral part, uh, you know, of American culture, Catholicism. But, you know, more like Protestant Christianity is far more impactful here. But in Spain, this would be a lot different, you know. I, I love the stones Amadovar has, um, has to have to make such a film. But it also makes me sad that a film like this would be so seemingly easy to forget, so, you know, why aren't I seeing anyone talk about bad education? I, I can't say that, uh, you know, I like several... I can't say that I like several other Amadovar films more, so maybe it's a thing where he has so much good work it gets overshadowed, much like a, a Woody Allen or the Coen Brothers or a Martin Scorsese. You know, the Coen Brothers have The Man Who Wasn't There, which Joe and I talked about recently, and that's a great example of just kind of a film that just went under the radar, even though it's really good. So maybe it's an overshadow issue. Who knows? But third, this is not a film we are meant to follow like a mystery thriller. It's a film we're allowed to steep in, wander around in until the pieces fit together. We follow these characters and we watch them do things, but everything somehow seems to be at the service of the overall story being told. So at its core, this is a melodrama, which Almodovar adores, okay? Uh, but imagine the best soap opera you've ever seen, only it looks great, sounds great, the performances are great, and the plot is wild. All right, uh, it's really great, seriously. If that doesn't sell it to you, if that's like a negative, get over yourself, just watch this movie. But there are drag queens, crimes committed, murder, uh, secrets eventually told, uh, and struggles with ethics and morality. I mean, if you haven't guessed, I encourage you to seek this film out. Um, I, Like I said, I watched it on uh, HBO Max. So 
you know, I encourage you to check it out. Or in some ways, maybe I don't. Maybe you should see some other Almodovar's of Almodovar's films, you know, so you can maybe see past some of the unconventional and potentially shocking or distracting aspects of his filmmaking. You know, if you have seen some of Almodovar's work, then yeah, totally jump in head first, uh, definitely. But, you know, some people might be distracted by certain aspects. So maybe you should start with something like Talk to Her. Or uh, maybe you should start with something like All About My Mother. These are also going to have interesting aspects, but they'll give you a great idea of who Pedro Almodovar is. Now, Ypres said about the film, Pedro Almodovar's new movie is like an ambiguous toy that is a joy to behold until you take it apart to see what makes it work, and then it never works again. While you're watching it, you don't realize how confused you are because it either makes sense from moment to moment, or when it doesn't, you're distracted by the sex. Life is like that. And that pretty much sums up the movie to me. I really love this film. Uh, I'm a big Almodovar fan anyways. And like I said, I saw Bad Education probably in 2005 or six, And I gave this film a four out of five. Um, I encourage you to go check it out again. It's on HBO Max. If you've seen Bad Education from 2004 and you agree or disagree, please hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can just search Medium Cool Pod and we'll be there. Or you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. I will be right back here in just a moment to talk about The Beast of War. everybody the beast of war from 1988 the next installment in our under the radar uh, marathon aka the nick Petitio appreciation award or award marathon <laughs> i swear to god i'm not drunk okay i'm like i'm just fucked up i don't understand how maybe it's just lack of sleep i can't use words still um but anyways um nick if you're listening man thanks a lot for the uh recommendation here this is the beast of war from 1988 if you haven't heard of this film hey neither had i uh it's directed by kevin reynolds we'll talk about him in a moment it's written by william mastro simone it's based on a play also by the writer uh and the play was called nanawate and or nanawate i guess would be a better pronunciation i was getting a little wild there but the cast is jason patrick george zunza stephen bauer stephen baldwin eric uh avari and don harvey if you don't know all of those names you'll know their faces i guarantee uh release date was september 16th 1988 a budget of eight million dollars get this everyone box office was 161 thousand dollars this is a super duper flop but it's not a flop in quality this is actually a pretty well-made movie and if you want to check it out yourself and i encourage you to just to get your own perspective it is uh free on amazon prime with a prime subscription and the film the beast of war or also known as the beast follows the soviets during their conflict with afghanistan a soviet tank and its warring crew become separated from their patrol and lost in an afghan valley with a group of venge- vengeance-seeking rebels on their tracks the soviets are played by american actors and speak english with no accent uh, whereas the afghans are you know kind of all over the place uh, but they speak the proper native tongue 
Uh, this honestly adds a lot to think about, but for now, I will say that the film has a certain tension and story development that I found fascinating. Now, this movie is fucking dark, folks, okay? Uh, it really is. It shows the Soviet soldiers as merciless and brutal. Uh, they run over a guy with a tank, and not just during battle. I mean, they drag a guy over to the treads, lay him down, and with full intent and malice, run that motherfucker over. Uh, that happens. Uh, you know, another time they poison a watering hole in the hope to just murder rebels. You know, not accounting for anyone else who might drink from it. I mean, there's a lot here, uh, but it's helpful to kind of look back at the history, all right? So I kept asking myself, you know, how did this movie ever get made? Because, you know, this could never be made now, I don't believe. And, and it's no wonder the film was essentially a flop and has been lost ever since, basically. Uh, you know, as I said, I... You know, it follows Soviet soldiers played by Americans. So consider this. In 1988, the Cold War was still going between the U.S. and Russia. The U.S. had funded the Afghan rebels in the late 70s and through the 80s during their conflict with the Soviets. So, you know, the film is made by the opposition of the people they are depicting, meaning we Americans were the opposition at the time and we're depicting the Soviets, right? And, and looking forward, uh, you know, a little over 13 years later, you know, our views on these two parties, the Soviets and Afghanistan, are very different, almost flipped, all right? So, uh, and, and I mean that culturally, not me personally, not you personally, but just culturally, I feel like we've kind of flipped on that. So, you know, further, the film is based on a play, which makes sense watching it. If, if you get a chance to see it, which I encourage you to. Uh, you know, you, you can get that sense, but it does not feel like canned theater, as in like, just like, basically they turned the play exactly into a movie, it's just more cinematic, but it still takes place in like one room or whatever, you know, um, you know, like the Sunset Limited or something would be a canned theater example, but this felt like a much bigger movie than I expected, as in many 80s films of the sort, you know, the props, the explosions, etc., they just feel big, and I actually really like the way that this film looks and feels. Um, there is a desert hue to the whole film, a warmth to the visuals while a very, very cold story unfolds. But what is so interesting looking at the film now in 2021 is the Afghans are the sympathetic group in the film, and the Russians are the monsters, even though our protagonists are the Russians. Now, <laughs> Like I said, the U.S. funded the Afghan resistance from 1979 to 1989. So when the Cold War officially ended, was 1989, all right? So it makes a lot of sense why the Afghans were sympathetic and the Russians were demonized at the time. But quite frankly, the Russians could be the U.S. troops nowadays and the film could still work because post 9-11, we saw a very xenophobic anti-Middle East rhetoric begin to grow. And unfortunately, it still holds on to this day, but hopefully to a lesser degree, maybe. Um, but our culture was built around demonizing the people of the Middle East. It didn't matter if they were from Pakistan. It didn't matter if they were from Afghanistan. Uh, Iran, Iraq, it was all the people in the Middle East. Of course, I don't agree with this, but I'm referring to, you know, a lot of the post 9-11 rhetoric. 
So if the Soviets in the film were just U.S. troops in Afghanistan, I would accept the same approach. Not, not to say we should just demonize U.S. troops. It's not at all what I'm saying. But, you know, we did a lot of heinous shit. And this is the type of film that makes me think about it. And the prejudice was there and the hatred and people taking pride in killing the enemy and so on. This is a reflection of what we might be 15 years after this film uh, was released. And, you know, uh, they even use like military lingo, U.S. military lingo, which would not translate properly to Russian military lingo. I guess like in Hungary and different countries, they actually retranslated it to actual Russian terms. But yeah, they just use like U.S. military. It's very easy to think that you're watching the U.S. versus Afghanistan, but this film was made when I was three. All right. Uh, but, you know, there, there are there are too many intentional comparisons. Uh, the Beast of War is eye-opening in many ways. And it's not that, you know, I had never thought of these things, but I had not seen a movie doing what this film does. So uh, there, there's a point where a twist happens of sorts. Uh, it's not really a twist, like a shift maybe. I don't know how to talk about it uh, while staying vague, but, you know, um, I can't divorce my experience in 2021 from the film that came out in 1988. I can look at it in history, but I think it's actually far more interesting to look at now. I think it actually holds a lot of relevance. I feel like there would have been a backlash from a certain sect of people in America, uh, but I still wish that this film had been released in like 2008 or so, uh, because maybe it would have, you know, some, it would maybe have made someone think a little differently about the current state uh, than, you know, they did related to our international affairs. But all that said, the film itself is more interesting to watch today, uh, in my opinion. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's good. And especially the moments we spend with the tank crew, Jason Patrick, George Zunza, Stephen Baldwin, Eric Avari, and Don Harvey really sold me on the crew. Each character is a different type of person, so the conflict is natural, and, you know, it makes sense. And when looking at it in the context of the film, it propels the story forward in a way that feels more seamless. Now, you know, in its heavy-handedness at times, uh, because it is, at times it is very heavy-handed. I was never bored or, like, offended by the heavy-handedness. Like, it was cool, but is it heavy-handed at times? Yes. Uh, but, you know, I like the characters, and do we pretty much see them as stereotypes of sorts? I would also say yes, but none of this is bad because the execution is so well done. Jason Patrick plays Kovarchenko, a neutral Soviet fighting for his country, but not buying into all the hatred. Now, he's not free of his own terrible acts, but they were all done hesitantly and via direct order from his soup, from his superior, uh, excellently played by George Zunza. Now, Zunza is Daskal, a hardened, war-torn soldier who takes so much pride in his work, it's it's a flaw, okay? Uh, you know, he has clearly seen a lot of combat because even when bullets are flying and all of his comrades hit the ground and hide, he stands tall and calm, searching through his binoculars for the enemy and in direct line of fire, but somehow through happenstance avoids all contact 
which reminded me of Mel Gibson's Lieutenant Colonel uh, Hal Moore and We Were Soldiers, or Robert Duvall's Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore and Apocalypse Now. Just that kind of, you know, very kind of cool under pressure, just like looking around while bullets are flying. Apparently, Zunza campaigned hard for the role and, uh, you know, went on a heavy diet to work uh, and workout routine. Uh, prior to the film, losing over 50 pounds in the process. And for those of you who know the actor, he was always a more heavy set guy, but he looks way different here. Now, the rest of the tank crew is made up of Golikov, Kaminsky, and Samad. Golikov is played by Stephen Baldwin, and he is a follower. He hears an order and follows it blindly. He's too scared to do anything out of line. And even though he clearly knows better and wants to at times, uh, he won't. Now, Kaminsky, who's played by Harvey, is your mindless grunt who will do all the dirty work and doesn't think much beyond himself and his safety. Now, Samad is very interesting to me, uh, and Samad is played by Eric Avari, and he plays an Afghan helping the Russians by translating and kind of navigating and working through kind of the cultural aspects and his philosophy is interesting because he believes in building up civilization and he sees the Soviet's end goal, you know, it overlaps enough with his own, uh, even if he doesn't always agree with their methods and, and so on. But, you know, he is still a Muslim and he prays every day and he is open to teaching the Soviets his practices and beliefs. And though they don't seem keen on learning it, except Kovarchenko. Uh, Samad and Kovarchenko, you know, get along fine, and Kovarchenko learns a lot from him, and I will let you find out what he learns when you watch the film. Now, Stephen Bauer, who played uh, Al Pacino's best friend in Scarface, Scarface, Jesus, Scarface, he played Manny, and he, uh, in this, he plays an Afghan rebel, Taj. And he's a lot better here than he was in Scarface, in my opinion. Okay, I mean, the Scarface one might be more iconic, but he's just better performance here, in my view. But he is a major part of where the sympathy comes in. The way Taj fights for his people, but seems to have a good head on his shoulders, so to speak, lends him to being a hero, even though he is not the protagonist. And it's weird because the structure of this film feels backwards in some ways, uh, in that usually your sympathetic character will be the protagonist or someone close to them, and your villain will get less time on screen, but each scene will be very important in developing the villain, or so it should be. But it works better this way in this film, I think, because Bauer does a good job here. And basically, Bauer gets less time and every scene matters because it's developing something very specific. And it's just it's just interesting. You should look out for that. When Nick Peticcio sent me this film, he informed me that this was Roger Avery's favorite film from 1988. Now, Avery was the co-writer of Pulp Fiction. Yes, for those of you who did not know that Tarantino didn't write the whole thing alone, he didn't. Um, <laughs> and Avery also, you know, did other works like, you know, writing and directing a film called Killing Zoe in 1993 and writing The Rules of Attraction that came out in 2002, a film that I really liked back then, but I honestly don't remember it well enough now. I need an updated take. And he also made a film a few a couple years ago called Lucky Day. Uh, and um, that is a film I have yet to see, but I digress. Uh, he told Nick 
The Beast of War is freaking fantastic. I saw the film with Quentin Tarantino in Westwood, California on the opening weekend, and no one was there. We had the theater to ourselves. The owner said it was in the theater for one day just for award qualifications. Talk about suppressing a film for reasons of political agenda. Same thing happened to Idiocracy. Too intelligent for its own good. I find the film transcendental as well as a fantastic action film. Now, Avery hits on something here. Uh, It's very important. The film was buried before it even had a chance to grow. All right. Looking at the reviews from the time, several critics talk about how doomed this film was, you know, even when it came out. And, uh, you know, it sucks because this is one of director Kevin Reynolds' best or better, at least, outings. And he would go on to make things like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in 1991, uh, the massive flop I can't wait to revisit known as Waterworld from 1995, and the Count of Monte Cristo from 2002, to name a few. And, you know, also, I thought that Douglas Milsom, his cinematography was quite good also. He's all He's notable. Uh, for this, uh, being the cinematographer on Full Metal Jacket, which is one of, if not my all-time favorite uh, war film, you know. Um, and then, you know, pretty much after 1988, it never quite, his career never quite rose to that level again. Not that it completely tanked. He had work, uh, but it was never at that level. And so uh, it's just kind of a bummer that this didn't do as well. I really, really wish it would have. You should definitely go check it out. If you have Amazon Prime, go check the film out for free. If you've seen it and you agree or disagree, first off, tell me how you found out about this movie uh, because I would love to hear that. But also, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's Medium Cool Pod. You can also uh, email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. I'm going to come back with a 2021 film. We're going to talk about one more. This is Dear Evan Hansen. All right, our last solo little thing that I do uh, is on a 2021 film. It is Dear Evan Hansen, which uh, Universal sent me a screener for last week. But because of the way that the episodes are laid out, I usually get screeners on like Wednesdays. And uh, I drop episodes on Tuesdays. So it's always the day after I drop an early episode. So I always release these new movies that I get screeners for after the movie comes out. But hopefully, you know, if you've seen it, great. Here are my thoughts, and if you haven't seen it, take it for what it's worth. Um, Dear Evan Hansen is a film from this year. just came out last Friday, uh, September 24th, 2021. Uh, it was directed by Stephen Jabosky and written by Stephen Levinson based on the play of the same name. Uh, and there's a, a long cast. I'm only going to name a few, but there's a whole lot more people. Uh, but Ben Platt plays the main character, and then Julianne Moore and Amy Adams are also in it. Uh, there's several other people that I don't need to mention by name, uh, but you know there's a a a, a uh, semi-large ensemble cast. Large is not the right word. It doesn't matter. I just don't want to read all the names. Is really what it is. So the point is this: it was released last Friday, had a budget of twenty-seven to twenty-eight million dollars, and Evan Hansen is a high schooler with extreme social anxiety, depression, and his therapist encourages him to write letters to himself, giving him the opportunity to be honest and transparent with himself. He unintentionally gets caught up in a lie after a classmate he barely knew committed suicide, and the family of the uh, child who committed suicide, the young man, uh, mistakes one of Hansen's letters 
to himself for their son's suicide note. How? Because Hanson was printing them off, uh, his letters off, and this classmate got to them first. And it sets off a series of unfortunate events for Hanson, and then some not-so-unfortunate ones, at least for a while. But I think there's a good movie inside Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, You know, it could have been there, but this is just not it. Um, This musical is directed by Stephen Chbosky, the guy who brought us, you know, YA movies uh, like The Perks of Being a Wallflower in 2022, which I did not like, uh, and Wonder from 2017, which I never got around to seeing. And he also co-wrote the screenplay for the live-action Beauty and the Beast film that Disney put out in 2017. Honestly, uh, I felt very similar with Dear Evan Hansen as I did with The Perks of Being a Wallflower. There is something very artificial about each of these films. They feel phony in some way that is hard for me to articulate, but you know, it's phony in a way that makes the film seem inherently bad or mediocre, but I don't think that that is true. I think there is a good film in there somewhere. Great, maybe not, but good. And it probably should have just stayed on the stage, you know, where I can see the appeal because we have a, we give a certain leeway to things on stage. It's a different experience, and I think it lends itself more to content like this. But, uh, you know, where we allot for that more leeway for melodrama and whatnot, for the screen, this needed an overhaul in terms of approach, okay? Chbosky's direction is lacking here. The film feels overworked, overdramatic, and stiff, the story about teens, uh, you know, about teen suicide is told, but in an incredibly disjointed way as we drift from scene to scene, being told what to feel, but feeling none of it. Uh, first, the music is basically pop music, so to each their own there. Uh, I wasn't into it. Not saying none of the numbers were powerful. Some of them on a superficial level were, and if I saw them on stage, they may have inspired far more emotion. But there was something about the way that they were worked into this that I wasn't a huge fan of. But it's a very, it's very dramatic and everyone sings the same way, you know, in this sometimes effective but mostly overdramatic and phony way where it's half singing, half talking in key. And, you know, this, you know, basically this happens on stage all the time, but it feels a whole lot different in a movie. Now, a 27-year-old playing a 17-year-old Ben Platt uh, has a great voice and is surprisingly good at lip syncing, unless, like Les Mis uh, in 2012, they sang live on set. At times I was convinced that that was the case, uh, but at other times I wasn't. But, you know, Pratt is actually, uh, or Platt rather, is actually good as the lead, I thought, uh, even though I can't buy into him as a high schooler. Uh, it actually reminded me uh, of like what would be like an SNL skit where you have all of these actual high schoolers and then there's this like like a Will Ferrell or something's playing a high schooler. It's not that ridiculous at all. It's far more believable than that, but that's like what kept coming to mind because he's so clearly not high school age. But uh, there's some serious 90210 shit going on. If you know, you know. But the point is... Uh, the director explained that the film's main goal was to capture and immortalize Platt's performance, and if anything, I would consider it a positive part of the film. So, Platt, you got me. A lot of critics didn't like him. I did. Uh, critic James Barnelli said, The numbers are mostly dreary ballads, and every time someone starts singing, the movie is the poorer for it. I actually agree with this. 
I could see these numbers hitting very differently on stage, and I don't like to compare two different mediums like that, but in this case, I think it's actually pretty important. Uh, the way that this movie plays out is so awkward and unbelievable. Even one standard you know, musical suspension of disbelief is pushed to the brink, and for me, it snapped long before. Uh, there are better ways to incorporate this, and if you're going to adapt you know, one medium to another, like a story from one medium to another. Um, and you really need to change what needs to be changed. Okay. Because something that is directly translated from stage is not going to directly translate to film. And I think they know this, like, it's not, it's not like I'm saying something surprising. I think people like filmmakers should just know this. I demand that of them. So there are better ways to incorporate such things. And I wish that this would have uh, honestly just been a recorded play like Hamilton from last year. Uh, just something where, you know, they're filming the play. Um, but, you know, I recognize it's a musical and I could have used a little more movie here. Uh, God knows I don't mean more running time because at two hours and 17 minutes, I should say not. But I feel like there is there are so many songs in this movie that not enough development outside of those numbers actually occurs, which almost always affected little in the film outside of the numbers, meaning there were so many of them, but they don't really do that much. Like they help you hear what's in like what someone's feeling or they, you know, through the song, they're trying to express something to someone, but it's always in kind of like this superficial way because it's a song. So it's like the song and the numbers take precedent over the effect of the film. And like I said, on stage, I could see this working a bit better, but not here. Uh, I think it really, really needed a much better balance. But Bernardinelli also said that he was reminded of the 1944 film I'll Do Anything, originally designed as a musical with eight songs by Prince. Uh, but the decision was made in the editing room to release... Uh, the Nick Nolte vehicle as a straight drama. So the songs were cut. So the songs, regardless of their inherent quality, uh, were deemed to be too much of a distraction. Now, I feel the same way about Dear Evan Hansen, and I agree with Bardinelli here, because he kind of uh, touches on the same things here. You know, I don't have much to say about this film, to be honest. It's about a boy trying to navigate the confusing and stressful life of a high schooler, dealing with depression, anxiety, and the works, struggling a day at a time, you know, he is thrust into a fictional scenario that goes far beyond his intentions, and he is dealing with the fact that this classmate, this young man, has committed suicide, and it is impacting Hansen's life somehow. And yet, the film does not do a good job at developing or executing this, because there is way too much going on here, and like I'll do anything, maybe there should be you know, some key moments from the play hitting, you know, the editing room floor. Maybe that's what the medium transition needs because it feels, I don't know, it just feels that way in my gut. That seems to be what needs to happen. We need to cut some of the shit and rework it. Doesn't mean that you cut that content. Maybe that content is redone and rewritten in a way where certain scenes can actually hit home. But there are so many musical sequences that are really trying very hard to hit very key emotions and plot points, but they are too distracting. There's too many of them, and it leaves the kind of big hits 
in the in the film, these big scenes, it leaves them feeling empty. Listen, I, I want this film to be something better, and I think it's just way too overdone as is. And I, I don't know what more to say lest I explain the entire film to you. It's trying too hard to be what it wants to be. And, you know, though I like the moments where I recognize truth in it, the moment Hansen meets the parents of the boy who committed suicide, for example, I think is a good scene. There's something good in there. Or the way that he looks at his romantic interest early on. You know, I see that. I feel that because I've been there. I get it. But it seems like everything truthful in the film gets shoved aside by forced and obligatory musical sequences. And as someone who likes musicals, this was too much. For a film... At the very least, you know, uh, but I, I, I demand more than this because film has the power to move, persuade, enrage, invoke joy, sadness, so many things. And when a film does not do that, I refuse to give it a trophy. It needs to do better. And Dear Evan Hansen is an example of that. And quite frankly, it should have been better. Platt is good here. I'll say that, though other critics would debate. I think he's good, and I liked him despite not buying his age, okay? That is a hurdle you'll have to jump through. Um, two true talents like Julianne Moore and Amy Adams deserve more, but they are good here, I think. Good. Not great, but good. But also, you know, they're better than this. They're not given enough to be their better selves. It's just a mess. I don't know what more to tell you. So I gave the film a one and a half out of five. Um, I think there is a much better, I think there's a three and a half to four out of five in this movie. Um, but in terms of what we get in the end, a one and a half out of five it is. If you have seen the film and agree or disagree, uh, please, by all means, uh, hit me up on um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MediumCoolPod. You can also email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear why you do or do not like it. I'm always, always open to feedback. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we are about to hop over and talk to our friend Greg Sorvig. If you don't know who that is, we're about to meet him right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Medium Cool. I am here with Greg Sorvig. Did I say your name right? You got it. Yes. Uh, I'm going to let Greg introduce himself, but this is the first time you and I have actually, to my knowledge, ever had an extended conversation that was not on Facebook Messenger or something. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I agree. You know, a long time ago, uh, you were an intern at Heartland, but we were kind of in different areas. Yeah. And I think you you had your job to sit there and watch movies in your corner. And um, yeah, probably should have talked to you more. But, you know, it has come to this. So it has this come is to <laughs> yeah, this is so exciting. And funny you mentioned that because uh, my time in 2013, I don't think the listeners actually even know this. I interned. It was for undergraduate interns, but I had just graduated and I wasn't in grad school yet. So you guys <laughs> made like uh, like a, a little like you gave me permission to do it. Basically, uh, yeah. you, you made some uh, what the frick is the word? Anyways, so uh, but I was in there and all I had to do was watch short films and like mark a paper. 
<laughs> yeah. Like have some notes, you know, basically say like, yeah, this is good quality. This isn't blah, blah, blah. Cause I was a programmer, short film programmer. Uh, mm-hmm. And what a great fun time. I mean, I honestly, like I've had few jobs granted that wasn't like a real like job per se. Like it was an internship. It wasn't like a long-term mm-hmm. thing for me, but man, what a fun time. You guys have a great like atmosphere there. You're right in the heart of um, Fountain Square. Mm-hmm. You know, you have everything going on. It was a great time. I'll talk about that some more uh, another time in terms of my interactions with Heartland. But yeah. uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Let our listeners know why you're here. Because I brought you here because your hands are in a lot of pots. You know what I mean? <laughs> why don't you tell people a little well, bit about... Austin what- invited me here because I was a finalist on America's Funniest Home Videos in 2012. So that's why I'm here. Um, that is a true oh, yeah. story. But... <laughs> okay. The real right. reason I'm in here. You is do realize that. we are going to talk about that at some point, okay? <laughs> hey, look, hey, you know, not holding anything back tonight. Um, no, um, like Austin said, I'm Greg Swarvik. I'm the artistic director at Heartland Films, the nonprofit in Indianapolis, um, celebrating its 30th anniversary. But we do the Heartland International Film Festival, and we do the Oscar qualifying Indie Shorts International Film Festival. We essentially claw machine to the short films 40 minutes or less into their own event in July. We have a great track record, um, big cast prizes, um, Academy Award winners, nominees, and just great word of mouth for hospitality, too. Um, I've been with uh, the festival for a decade now. This is my 10th Heartland, and um, people might not know this, but a lot of programmers also program and have their hands in other festivals. So I'm an associate um, programmer with Tribeca out in New York, too, and their shorts team. And then also do a bunch of jury gigs, um, uh, panelists for grants and stuff. So I was with the National Endowment for the Arts a few years ago, um, doing a couple panelist reviewing gigs now. I can't talk about, but I'm really excited uh, to be working on. So that's kind of uh, me in a nutshell and a big movie fan. Yeah, you you have a lot going on. You, your your website gregsorvik.com was very informative. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Dude, it just scrolls forever. You're just a part of a lot you of have things. To, you have movies. to go daily for all these amazing updates. No, I should probably go back and, and update it. <laughs> no, it's it's great. I mean, I was it, yeah. It's just it's it's really fun to have you here because we can go so many different directions. I want to start simple though. I'm going to throw you a softball. This is easy because I, sure. I want to talk a little bit about you know in order to be the person you are, uh, you know, dealing mm-hmm. with all these uh, film festivals, having to watch. So much crap. I'm sure you have to be a movie fan, which is exactly what you said. Oh, definitely. And I'm curious. Yeah. Where did that start? You know, how did you get to a point where you're like, God, I love movies. And then you're like, wow, I want to make a job where I do stuff with movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think um, I've been in Indiana now about half my life. I'm in my late 30s. And I think everyone loves movies. Everyone, I think, would love to be a director or an actor without any knowledge of how to do it or anything like that, too. And I think a lot of people, um, from Indiana, especially, I moved in my middle of my senior year of high school, went to IU as a late applicant, um, and did kind of film studies and stuff there too. But I, I don't know. It's, it feels like sometimes, you know, it, you can really feel like, you know, there's imposter syndrome or like, oh, I don't have the talent and that kind of stuff too. And for me, especially even in college, I feel like I was behind the eight ball, like, oh, I guess I want to go into directing or something like that too. Um, I don't know. So basically I did undergrad at IU for communication um, and culture is, was their major at the time. And so I figured, Hey, if 
something in movies, which again, big question mark, fuzzy. I don't know what that exactly means. Doesn't work out. I can still have a communication degree and mold something into that as well. So I did some um, 60 millimeter uh, basic work there, wrote an atrocious coming of age screenplay, my my garden state, if you will. I feel like everyone has a movie that like that was their movie. Um, and then they just shudder thinking about it. Um, so got that out of my system too. But uh, just from early, early on, I remember, you know, kind of this in between, I guess I'm technically a millennial born in 84, but like I have that very analog childhood love going to the grocery store, the video store, either like the flaps that you pull off if a movie was available or the actual VHS box. Oh yeah. And, um, that, and one of the first memories, I just remember renting Indiana Jones and the temple of doom religiously, like without a beat every week. And I think, um, kudos to my parents for, you know, watching letting the, their four-year-old watch you know, do get his heart ripped out every week and <laughs> multiple times and other stuff too. i think i think that movie you know it might get ragged on for that trilogy but there's so much wonder and adventure and fun in that movie and i think that movie initially instilled a lot in me too and i remember i got um sick as a kid too and i remember the the great pumpkin if you will brought me the green vhs tape of et as well so i mean i really started with like some of those spielberg classics as a kid got that imagination going but yeah but i always loved movies i remember going to uh, middle school high school multiplex having like a three-peat day where you just sit there with a friend and watch three movies on a day and just go bonkers and stuff too um and again like american capitalist culture i remember like carrying around some magazine that had the first promotion for home alone 2 in it like <laughs> like, like like it was my like uh, i don't i don't even know what to compare it to but i carried it around like like a fanatic like oh wow this movie's coming and so yeah i just total young fanboy and just kind of went from there um didn't quite know what to do but so that's what i do now like i'm on the iu media school um alumni board and stuff too and i love telling especially students high school and college that there is a career even beyond making movies as well um so yeah it's really neat but even like you you intern at heartland you get involved with film festivals usually by volunteering or interning and um, that's what i did didn't think i'd be doing anything um with movies necessarily but yeah um another side fact for me i keep rambling but i did intern twice at disney down in florida their college program so kind of serendipitously i worked at the great movie ride which is a 23 minute tram ride through the movies um i don't think i'll ever not have singing in the rain in my head um <laughs> <laughs> every day but essentially i was dressed in a newsies outfit you're on this tram with a hundred some people and you get hijacked by a gangster or a cowboy you go through all these classic movies as well um, the ride is no longer there but it was kind of cool to have that kind of movie experience kind of as this um, bridge between childhood and professional career type stuff too. Yeah. So yeah, love being movies, being around movies, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. But would I have expected to be here today? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I I'm just. I, it looks like I'm a year younger than you because I was born in '85. So we kind of have that mm -hmm. same. You know, my, my yeah. thing was at the at. You know, when you go to the blockbuster, you'd have these VHSs you could pull out behind uh, the case. But there was this other one called Stars and Stripes. It was just like a local one, and, and I'm from Muncie, Indiana, originally. And I would, you, they had these little plastic cards and these little sleeves that they would tape, like to the front cartridge thing or whatever. And so you would pull it out, take it up there, and then they'd pull out these huge drawers and like get the <laughs> yeah. matching numbers or whatever. 
Uh, and yeah, there is such a nostalgia to that. And a lot of movies that you see during that period in your life can still stick with you. Even, even if you don't think they're good now, like there's so many movies I think are bad that I grew up watching, but I love watching them still. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. And, and, and the wonder and awe of like a VHS tape, it's almost like going to a film festival. You see, like you might see a synopsis, you might see a still, but that's what VHS tapes were like. It's like, and there'd be movies, especially horror movies as a kid that I couldn't rent yet, but you're like, you imagine what it would be. Oh yeah. It would take years and stuff too, but yeah, I remember, I think it's so much instant gratification now. A movie comes out, you can stream it. Availability is not an issue. Even movie seats now, most theaters are reserved seating or something too. You have that thing, but like the biggest movie anxiety moments would be like new release day, Friday, you get out, out of school and you like, you dash to the video store and you know, they have <laughs> all the copies of the boxes, but if there wasn't that second copy back, you know, behind it, it'd be gone. Yeah. Huge anxiety there. The Star Wars, um, I would say even the special edition and the prequel uh, movies when they hit theaters too, the stress of going to like the midnight screenings and getting a seat <laughs> and yeah. stuff now. And like the sequels, I was like, oh, got my got my seat, no big deal. The, seat, the seat thing is real. That was a big Yeah, it's though. awesome. I mean, whenever you when you when you would go back then and not know if you're gonna be able to sit with the people you came with. <laughs> because there's yeah. this huge line between you and the person that you're going to give money to. Uh, yeah, it was it was real. But y you were talking about the the film festivals and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because, like, I was from Muncie. I was actually traveling to Indianapolis, to Fountain Square. Like, I, I think I worked there two or three times a week. I think it was maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We had our meetings yeah. on Wednesdays, and I basically watched movies. And at home, I would have the spreadsheets and watch them from there sometimes. And, um, man, if I had lived in Indy, I would have never left. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, if, if I could have just, like, pulled it off. Because it's true. You know, I, I didn't get into film till 2003. I was 18, before that, I just watched whatever was around, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. I just fell in love that year and became like a complete fanatic. And I just remember, like, at first, kind of like you mentioned, uh, you know, people wanting to be the director or wanting to, you know, be a writer yeah. or, or be a part of the production side. Even whenever I started going to Ball State, I had uh, production in mind. So I hadn't declared a major yet, but that's what I was going to do is film production. And then the more and more I learned about it, the more I was like, man, I'd rather just study like film history or the the film and media studies part of it, the academic side, because I can always mm -hmm. just make the movie. You know what I mean? But it's like I want to have a knowledge of this thing. And then what that led to was criticism, of course, or, you know, uh, the academic side of it or film societies or film festivals or like it kind of mm -hmm. like opened up strangely opened up this like whole world I didn't know existed. And I love that you're able to kind of like talk to students and tell them, like, hey, there's a lot more than just, like, picking up the camera. Yeah. Like, there's a lot going on, and you should, like, get involved. So I think I think there's a fallacy, too, that, you know, I think you're, you're passionate going into school as a college student, and then you, like, you know, like, the the glitz and glamour of movies in Hollywood will, will wreck you. You know what I mean? It's, like, either not true or it's just... But the, in the independent film world and film festivals, I mean, there is so much passion, and people put their blood, sweat, tears, life savings into these films and you get to help make those dreams come true. Granted, you also crush a lot of dreams. Yeah. <laughs> That's the part I hate the most too. I mean, the submission acceptance rate, you know, for us um, is a single digit percentage in like Tribeca, it's like 1%. Um, but there's always the next project and stuff too. But yeah, I think 
I think you can still kind of surf that wave of passion and excitement and not be too jaded through working with the festival too. Yeah. I think I've definitely been inspired and every year um, is almost like going to film school and like living that Tarantino type uh, non-film school where you even get a better grasp of yourself as a person, your taste, um, because everything is subjective as well too. But yeah, you really do. And I think it, a lot of it is relationship-based, but again, you you meet more and more passionate people and you build a, a really great network. And I think that's what's fantastic. So if I, if I wanted to pivot someday, wanted to do something, I, I probably could. And I think that's really neat because like you said, with film studies too, I had a professor, a mentor, and he was like, it's like, yeah, I think I'm going to do film studies. I'm going to do another four to eight, you know, eight years of school. And he said, don't do that. <laughs> he said, um, you will get one job offer and somewhere um that you might not want to live and go from there too so it was kind of nice having that candid feedback um there still is a place i still love being involved with university settings and working with professors and film studies and stuff too but it was kind of neat having that perspective at that time um as well and going from there but yeah yeah it's a neat thing and i think even your experience as an intern hopefully that was valuable for you now going into criticism and stuff too because we have a lot of people people might not know this but most festivals are nonprofits and they have either interns. Majority of people are pre-screeners who watch films. Usually, you know, we have some type of test. So, you know, cut the mustard oh, yeah. from the get go. I had to look at those things. I had to put those exactly. in the spreadsheet. They'd send you the thing and then I had to transfer <laughs> it all over to the spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. And so actually that's been you know, streamlined a lot better now. So I think thanks for paving the way um, <laughs> back then too. <laughs> But it is one thing to say you love movies to go to the movies, but it's another thing to um, quantify them, put a number on a film um, for a multitude of factors um, to to verbalize why you like or don't like a film. What are the strong points? And especially even even for me and stuff too, I think for, you know, we've done this for our stuff too, and even for Tribeca, it's like, keep it succinct. I want to know, you know, is it a swim? Is it a sink? Is it give me three sentences to either support why you love this film or not? Because the majority of films are either average or not good. Um, yeah. So as, as, as films really have to to step up and there has to be a special element um, for them to really move forward or find a place at a fest. Yeah. You know, whenever I was doing, you know, I watched, I think I was there for about three months, two and a half months, something like that, just the summer, basically. And I remember... Uh, I watched 300 short films in that time. And like, again, three days a week, like uh, for what, 12 weeks or something. And I watched 300 of these damn things. It was anywhere from like three minutes to like 50 minutes. They were long. Mm -hmm. Now you have like the 45 minute thing uh, for at least the other one, that which is great. But uh, at the time, you know, we'd have some that we'd question. Ah, does this go in featured? Is this going short? Because they'd be right in the line. Uh, but it was so yeah. easy to get through all the three to five, ten minute ones, right? You can get through so many in a day. And then what happens is if you watch too many of them, then you have a whole list of 45 minute ones that <laughs> that's going to take you forever yeah. to get through. But the best part was just, I mean, I, I guarantee it's different now. So I'm just, it's, I'm kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit. But this is like part of the thing I loved about it is I would often go in with my notes, right? And we'd have this meeting and basically each person would go around this table. And you have to basically talk about why are you choosing this film? Why are you giving it this number? Because there was a number system. Mm -hmm. And it's like, does this deserve to be in the festival? Why? Kind of a thing. So I would uh, explain my point. 
And what was great, talking about learning something about yourself and always kind of having fresh perspectives and things like that, is as I'm trying to explain my point, someone brings up a counterpoint I never thought of. And I'm the type of person that I like going in prepared. So if somebody just throws it at me, I'm like, duh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, uh, you know, or whatever, you know, like just, like I just, I learned how to have better, more like succinct, but also like well rounded arguments for why I liked something. Because uh, they mm-hmm. were always kind of like these polite debates. You know what I mean? Like no one was ever like mad, but it was like we would always like kind of debate each other. Um, and so like we always, we had this huge whiteboard. And we had like, uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, the sticky notes. Well, we didn't have sticky notes. They were just okay. cards, like the little. Oh, just note cards. No, yeah. Words. You know what I mean? Words are hard. <laughs> Anyways, we had note cards, but no, sticky notes would be the same thing pretty much. Yeah. And we would just start like lining them up under yeah. like different things. And it was just so cool is my point. It was so cool to like see how these things play out. See honestly how many average to bad movies there are, like you said, because out of the 300 I watched, there were probably like 15 truly good ones, you know, like really yeah. good. And then everything below it, it's not that they're like bad, it's just these aren't you watching, you're like, this will not make the cut, like, this is not gonna happen, yeah. definitely. And so, and, it, and even 15 out of 300 is, is a good percentage, like, yeah. that's uh, it's really good too. I mean, I did that. So I basically, I volunteered starting with Heartland. I was doing kind of marketing stuff. I was covering local events, uh, almost like vlogging, if that's even a term anymore, <laughs> for stuff too. I was doing some other blog posts and stuff too. And then I did narrative feature reviews too. And features will really test you, especially on the dramatic side too. Um, and I mean, and, and in tunnel vision, it, it's a real thing because you will start questioning yourself. You'll see so many films that are maybe okay, not good. And you start to think, well, maybe that's not too bad. Or you're start, you know, um, just your standards might drop or you get, you're feeling a little, a little gracious, a little giving, you know, <laughs> so Dude, 100%. It, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's, and especially during COVID these past 18 months, it is almost like a solitary confinement, um, type thing. You gotta, you have to stick to your, to your guns. And yeah. Stuff too. Dude, I got, you just said the thing, this is for critics and just for like the pro- program team or whatever. When we do our end of the year cram, right? You're trying to get in all your, the movies so that you can write your reviews or you can do your top 10 for the end of the year. Or, you know, like you're doing you're doing the big cram for critics or for the film program. Like you're trying to get this stuff ready so you can program the <laughs> festival and get it moving. And, uh, excuse me. Um, you know, it's like you see so many mediocre two and a half to three out of five star movie kind of things, you know? And then you see that one that's like three and a half and it's like unbelievable to you because you've watched so many not great that when you see the one that's like kind of good, you're like, oh, thank God, this was so awesome. But it's that moment when you finally see that next five star movie. They're like, oh, shit, like these aren't nearly as cool as like like (laughs) these other ones I thought were okay aren't. It's interesting how that kind of consistency can start to skew and make you overthink because you're like, I don't want to be too harsh, but I want to be honest. But right now my feelings are like very harsh. So I'm like trying to think through them. And that year I did the 300, that happened all the time. Because like I said, 15 out of 300, that means there were full days where I'm watching very mediocre to bad things. And I'll never forget, that was the year. I'm sure you'll remember this. Hell, you probably even got the movie sent to you. It wasn't even on my list. It was just an extra short film 
that someone was literally emailing around everybody like, you have to see this. This is the star. And it was the film Cargo. Do you remember Cargo, mm-hmm. the seven-minute short? Mm-hmm. I thought that was so good. And that was the movie that I watched. And I was like, I feel like I have to re-rate all of these movies now. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I think? Yeah. Is it was so good to me at the time that everything else just paled in comparison to me. Um, and yeah, that it's it's a lot of fun. And and I kind of want to pivot into that because we're talking about Heartland International Film Festival here. This is the 30th anniversary. Uh, last year, I think last year you guys were virtual, and I'd like you to talk about that in a second. But this sure. year it's October 7th through the 17th. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit about how last year went because that had to be a wild ride with the pandemic and going virtual. Yeah. But then also, if you could, talk a little bit about how big of a year this is because I know you guys have gotten like a lot of big movies coming this year you got like a lot of stuff that's at even the even bigger festivals that you're pulling in i would love to hear about just heartland last year and this year go for it yeah definitely so last year uh luckily i guess if there's a silver lining it's the timing and we do two festivals and luckily neither of them were wildly negatively affected like some other festivals like we have friends at south by southwest cleveland march fest and even, even, you know, with the Tribeca team, um, you know, I think Tribeca was primarily last year industry virtual just to get eyes on it being kind of yeah. an industry fest too, but South by they did, you know, they went online and they partnered with Amazon the last second Cleveland, which is a, you know, it's still a big fest, but regional more like Heartland and stuff too. I mean, they take over a shopping mall. They had banners printed for the entire mall. They had their guidebooks set everything. And then they had to like call it all off. It was, that was nuts. So that's wild. Luckily that that was nuts. And everyone, you know, we were wondering, are we going to have a fest? And I think the huge factor was there's a will in a way filmmakers want to show their work. Festivals want to move forward. Safety is the biggest thing, but then how, how would you do that in in a virtual world? Because I think, the, the stereotype is like, oh, you know, I'm just going to throw my film on YouTube and it's going to be cool and everyone's going to see it. Like, that doesn't work, you know, regardless. But I think that's what people think of when they think about putting their film online. So there needed to be an industry standard that both studios and filmmakers of, of varying levels um, would agree upon. So luckily, we signed a deal to work with Inventive um, for ticketing in January. And then the pandemic hit months later, they became one of the leaders in virtual presentation. Um, so DRM protections, forensic watermarking. So if anything, if somebody was trying to be really crappy and trying to pirate a film, uh, the forensic watermarking can go right back to them. And the FBI can basically like tell immediately who did it. So uh, we have not had any instances of that, but just, you know, we wanted to make sure that was good and it was okay. Traditionally for us, um, as an October festival for the big feature films, we chase films like Toronto, which is early September as well. Films might be usually films like at, at Cannes, Venice, usually are so big that usually they don't know what they're doing for the U.S. market. <laughs> yeah, that has yeah. changed though dramatically, which we'll talk about for this year. But usually those films don't don't travel to us that quickly anyway. Too, but usually we're we're going wild at TIFF. Back in 2019, I remember waiting in line at Toronto, getting the email that we had just mercy for closing, celebrating. I saw a beautiful day in the neighborhood with Tom Hanks there. 
We ended up getting the U.S. premiere. But, I mean, it was hustling, getting back to Indy, and just locking in and announcing. It was, it was crazy. So this past year, usually, you know, studios want in person. They were not – they were the last ones to adjust to virtual, even with the protections. There were some studios um, – I'm very not surprised, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Like, like uh, yeah, so Eventive was working with some studios, so they trusted them with the protections, but it was very slow going. And we only had, we had a finite amount, maybe 17 um, drive-in screenings, and the rest was virtual. And usually the studios, we can keep TBA to be announced lots, and we can add stuff late. But with a new venue who's used to things being booked very early and stuff too, we lock stuff in early. So we maybe could have gotten some big films if we waited super late, but we just did not have that time to do that. Yeah. But luckily, some great friends at IFC Films worked with us. So we had MLK FBI, um, which Oscar shortlisted from Sam Pollard. We had Blight Spirit, which was a fun romp with um, Dan Stevens and Isla Fisher for Closing Night. We had a Tony Hale um, comedy for for opening from uh, independent filmmakers that we worked with in the past, too. So it was still a good year. But we thought it was going to be a Band-Aid year. We thought, we'll get through this. It's not going to be the same. There's not many filmmakers coming to town beyond the local filmmakers um, just because they couldn't come with COVID. But it ended up being a, a very fairly successful year because A24 came and they said, hey, we want to virtually show Minari with you as oh, your centerpiece. Wow. Yeah. So we had, we had Minari. The trailer dropped. We were, I think, the only festival in the country world to be selling tickets offering Minari virtually. So, I mean, like, it was crazy timing there. Um, that film went on um, to, you know, uh, win some Oscars and get nominated and stuff too. So that was really cool. Um, so A24 is an awesome distributor, but they were really great at adapting um, to the pandemic and they did their own virtual screening room and we partnered with them with that as well. Um, but then we had 76 days from an alumni filmmaker about the COVID outbreak in Wuhan directed by uh, and edited by Hao Wu um, and then uh, Rexy Chan, an anonymous filmmaker on the ground um, in Wuhan, were the ones who filmed it. And that film played Toronto, it was at Camden, but then we had it at our fest. And Sheila Nevins from MTV, formerly HBO, was on the jury, loved the film, and uh, picked it up during the fest. So that was the first major acquisition out of our festival. And it happened during this uh, quote unquote band aid year, which was crazy. So the film went on middle of September to get pushed for the Oscars, make the short list, which was crazy. And then it went on to win a Peabody, just won an Emmy last week. And if it wasn't for us at Heartland uh, making a connection again in my basement where I'm recording this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> um, then that's what's crazy to think about. So I think. I think, you know, we've, we've been around a long time, but we're finally coming to our own with studios and the trust and the audience and that kind of stuff too, um, which leads in, leads into this, this year. So well, be um, before you get there, tell me yeah. this, because you're talking a lot about a 24 hit you guys up and you did this and that before we get into, cause the list this year is crazy. And before we get it into is. this yeah. year though, like just for any year, the one thing I never under, so let me start over here. When I was interning, all the films I was watching were thing were films uh, like that were submitted by the filmmaker Correct. or the yeah. uh, company or whatever. But how do you get films for your film fest? Do they have to be 
that or do you sometimes reach out to a company and say, hey, we would love for this to be a part of the festival? Like, how do you even get the films outside of the filmmaker or company submits them? Yes, yes. So um, Film Freeway has become kind of the um, top dog for submitting your film to film festivals. Um, and I think even Sundance, I think they might still have their own proprietary system, as does Tribeca. But a lot of festivals now use Film Freeway with Out of Box used to be the top dog and they've since folded um, as well. Um, and their technology was not great. So that's okay. <laughs> I wasn't sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> film Freeway came along. So essentially, if you submit your film as an official selection, pretty much if you're if you're an indie film, the lion's share of films out there, you submit through this platform to any festival for consideration. And there's a fee associated with that, too, and different deadlines uh, for studios. The goal for independent film submitting to festivals is to hopefully get noticed and get distribution. These big films, the tentpole films that we're going to talk about for the fest that we're excited to have that are pretty much making their big debuts at Venice, Telluride, Cannes. Um, either they have distribution already or they're getting picked up at these fests. Um, and so really we hit at a great time in October that we're right. Oscar season really starts in September with Venice um, and, and Telluride and Toronto. And then if we secure films from those festivals, we are essentially on this Oscar path leading in before a lot of these films are released for the most part, November, December, January. So it, that does come down to personal relationships with studio reps. Usually it's a publicity rep, marketing rep. Um, but again, through traveling to different festivals and that kind of stuff, you meet different contacts. Um, and it, yeah, it kind of goes from there. And for a long time, Heartland, we didn't go to a lot of festivals. I think, you know, um, you know, my predecessor, Tim, who you worked with, um, you know, we started going to different fests and stuff too. And I think um, his he was his wife was going to have their their first child, so I got to go to Sundance instead of him one year. So that opened my eyes to everything, um, which was really neat to kind of move forward there too. But yeah, we've been to a lot. You know, Heartland Reps. We've been to Cannes. We've been to TIFF. Just came back from Telluride, which was phenomenal. Um, to Claremont Ferrand, the world's largest short film festival in France, in February March as well too. So we are. Part of it is being in the room. So I think there was a mindset for a while. Oh, people need to know about Heartland. Let's be real. You know, <laughs> I think we are in Indianapolis, Indiana. We don't have tax incentives. We don't have the odds are against us in Indiana. I'll just flat out say that. I think everyone knows that. But hopefully we can be a beacon to show that we have smart audiences. We have uh, diverse audiences who are hungry for for big films and small films, um, figuratively and, you know, um, literally too. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I love that. Like even in 2013 or even before the Indiana film, like journalism or film community in general was so different than it is now. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, it seems like you guys and uh, the Indiana film journalist association guys, all of our friends, you know, like uh, Joe and uh, Sam and Chris and all these guys, like yeah. they're like all of these guys, including you folks, like, just kind of like hit the ground and started like mobilizing this film community where it seems like things, I don't know. I, I feel like I see so much more now, whereas before it was just kind of like, you know, oh, okay, cool. We're like the one film outlet in Indiana or whatever, you know, now it seems like there's so much more going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah. And I think it's been neat to see that change of reputation from Heartland. I think my goal coming in from Heartland, starting with marketing and then transitioning to film programming is it was, well, first it was branding. We got rid of any heart shapes on things, which I was very proud of. Um, so we moved forward with that. And then it's just having a lineup that people can't miss. That's what it comes to. And it's hard with studio films usually are kind of like that, you know, gateway drug to <laughs> the other indie stuff too. But, you know, even early on, whether it's, it's, whether it was critics or it was just moviegoers in general, I think people just overlooked Heartland in general and stuff too. Cause I think, you know, I think Indie Film Fest was created as a counter festival to Heartland for the early kind of Pollyannic content it had. So it's really neat now. My career started a decade ago trying to build and expand on something that already something special that had already been established, but something that needed an injection from, I think, a true cinephile and expanding um, the, the demo and having great films. Um it's really neat to see that now where people are seeing the lineup and they've been coming for the, you know, the recent years and they have a totally different, awesome feeling about the fest. So it's kind of neat to have that kind of bridge um, viewpoint as well too, but it's, it's really neat to be here for that, that whole process and stuff too. But yeah, the, the, the critics, I think as well too, there's been so many more outlets recently. IFJA has been fantastic in covering the fest and we have an award associated with the organization too. But yeah, I've seen, I think people are excited and I think that's, what's neat, especially this year. Some of the titles, it was just some jaw dropping titles that Dude. people would have never expected to be at Heartland, let alone here in Indiana. So we're, this we're is fun. so awesome. If you don't mind, I'm going to read off some of these titles you have. <laughs> yeah, and go then for it. what we'll do is we'll start talking about this year's Heartland. And I just want to say listeners, if, if you are not in Indiana or you're nowhere close to Indianapolis, you can't attend Heartland Film Festival. Use this as a, like, the quote-unquote who's who of movies right now. <laughs> like, a lot of the movies we're about to talk about are ones you don't want to miss. So if you can't be at the festival, definitely, like, look for these movies. Because a lot. I'm like, of course, you know, as doing this podcast, I try to keep up with what's coming out. What are the exciting movies? What are people hyped about? And then I love finding those little under-the-radar movies that I'm oh, yeah. excited about personally. But I also want to know, like, what are the big exciting ones? But man, and you, also you've... pitch that if anybody in the meantime wants to come out, a lot of these big films will be in person only. But I've heard from a lot of folks like, hey, I think I might actually have to brave the trip to Indy. So oh, I'll preface dude. it with that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you can be here, I do encourage you to be here because we have films like King Richard, Spencer, uh, Mike Mills, who did uh, begin The Beginners, which I was a big mm -hmm. fan of. He did. Uh, uh, come on, come on, which looks great. It's another A24 title. Uh, the Power of the Dog by Jane Campion. Uh, but dude, the French Dispatch. You the got French the Wes Dispatch. Anderson yeah. movie, homie. Oh my gosh, that's so great. Belfast, The Hand of God, uh, by uh, uh, Sorrentino. Uh, and Kenneth Branagh did the the uh, Belfast, which is I am like surprisingly a Branagh fan. You know, like like he's one of those names that yeah. people know who he is, but like I don't think a lot of people think of him. But I love Shakespeare, right. and I just love his character-driven kind of dialogue type movie. I don't know. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan. But then uh, some of the titles you've announced before that, if I understand correctly, and correct me where I'm wrong, a lot of these were at studio or at uh, festivals, and you probably pulled them yeah. in. Stuff like Julia Mass, which has been on my radar since Sundance, mm -hmm. uh, Bergman Island, which is. 
I just don't even know how to feel about it. I'm like excited about it, but it's like, man, is this going to be another one of those movies that's more about, like clearly the filmmaker's just a cinephile and didn't know what to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's clearly, I mean, Bergman Island kind of says it, uh, but it looks awesome. And uh, there's a movie called Flea, The Humans, Jagged, The uh, the Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne. I mean, there's so many more. I'm just like looking uh, at this list uh, in yeah. a Heartland article here. Uh, All of these films... Us- like you said, have come from uh, big premieres at these at these huge fests, and we're we're really excited to have them too. But I this is the, I think the first year I've seen so many of these huge contenders early. So if you want any either non spoilery insight, I'd be glad to provide that too. But this year, again, usually we we put in a, for waitlist pass to Telluride, which happens about a week before Toronto, thinking we could get a week jump on films if things panned out, if things were in person, a lot of what ifs this year, a lot of dominoes had to fall. Um, but I'll you tell were you just there, right? Like you were you just were, yeah, there yeah. and then you released the titles. Like you Early said, September. Like, yeah. Now I'll tell you, we, we had, so that was, we went into tell you, right. They don't announce their lineup until the day before. But I was like, Oh, I've already seen like 12 of these bad boys. <laughs> like, yeah, and yeah. I mean, they're coming to Indy and I can't say anything about it, but there are a couple of films like uh, Belfast. We did not have locked in early. I saw the North American premiere and contacted the studio and we locked it in like it was um yeah it, it was it was great so that's the thing too so if you're coming to indy that film is going to be in a smaller house compared to some of the other films so definitely get your ticket to belfast um and that film just won the tiff people's choice award um if you're not familiar toronto does not give out a lot of awards but they do have like an audience choice people's choice award Traditionally, if a film wins that narrative award, it was just narrative until a few years ago. They did a documentary as well. And both of those films are essentially early front runners for their categories. Um, and uh, Belfast took home that honor. They announced the second and third ones, The Power of the Dog, which I'm not surprised was second in voting to. And then um, The Rescue, the uh, National Geographic documentary from the follow-up from the directors of uh, Free Solo won the doc and free solo won that award um what three to four years ago and went on to win an oscar too so you never quite know but yeah all these films came from these huge fests and i think some some of the studios were um you know have to be shy about you know the secrecy of being a telly ride but um toronto opens a little bit you know opens their lineup a little bit early announces some stuff too so i can reach out about some different titles here and there but I, yeah, I will give kudos to the studios for access and locking stuff in early. And it was just a, a tiny snowball to an avalanche this year in terms of the ball rolling and wor- working with contacts. And um, and I'll say this is the first year that it's everything was booked through direct studio contacts. And it has not been that way. So I think that as a programmer, that takes a lot of time and effort to get those contacts and to get contracts that trust you as well too um again shedding whether it's a past reputation do you have the audience for this film um but that's the thing too like i i am passionate about these movies i'm passionate about expanding the landscape of cinema in indiana and i think that showed and i fought for a lot of these these were not a lot of these were not immediate yeses and i think um yeah that made me extremely proud um and a lot of these films might not know what they want to do until after oh, hey, I'm going to wait until we see if we won the, the TIFF award because that could change the entire trajectory of a film. That could 
that could put you from zero to hero to be uh, an Oscar frontrunner <laughs> overnight. So it's, I'm, it's very fortunate this year. Um, I don't want to call it, you know, like a, a backlog. You know, some films like French Dispatch were delayed from COVID. And um, again, that's, it's a pinch yourself when we had kind of our smaller event announcing the lineup. We just, I teased the film when we played the trailer. And I don't think like we would ever in the past imagine just even with timing, because traditionally Wes Anderson films might not release in this um, time of year and stuff too. But yeah, it, that was a pinch yourself type thing. And that film was not initially announced for Telluride, but then it was announced as a TBA. So I got to see the, um, I guess, North American premiere at with a full house at Telluride, which was really cool. And it's next level Wes Anderson. It's not... Well, that's what I, I want to talk about. I want to talk yeah. about this. This is the first one go for it. I want to dig in. So without spoiling, of course, continue with what you're about to say, because I want to hear about the French dis- Dispatch, Ben. It's funny. I feel like for directors like Chris Nolan and Wes Anderson, there might be the people who like the directors, but might not understand the films, which might be even more um, expressive of a Chris Nolan <laughs> as opposed to Wes Anderson, too. Like, oh, that was really cool. I don't. I, I know it's good. I don't know, going back even to film criticism and uh, voicing your opinions and stuff too. But Wes Anderson, you know, gets kind of, um, you know, lauded for the, the rich color palettes and the eccentric framing and something like wider shots with something going on in the frame at all times. Yeah, quirky and humor too. and exactly. awkwardness. And, and a lot of that is still here, but this film is very segmented where you are essentially looking at this magazine um that is covering french happenings going back to kansas so it's a kansas publication which is kind of a funny throwback to heartland in the midwest as well too so essentially you're looking you're you're seeing the beginning something happens with one of the staff members and then it kind of pulls back and you're looking at this this final issue and you're looking at these different stories and you're thrust into essentially the author's perspective in each section each story. So it's almost like you're watching living this magazine, this publication unfold, the French dispatch. So it's really neat. Uh, a lot of the film is in black and white, which again, if people just uh, fall on the, the crutch of the, the color palette, then maybe <laughs> that's, that's the thing they lean on. It's a little bit different too. Um, I don't want to say like racier content than traditional Wes Anderson films too, but I guess I'll, I'll go there. I'll even say that too, but Yes, yeah, I would say it's next level, Wes Anderson. It's not not that all his recent films have been expected or similar, but this film has what people have expected and loved from Wes Anderson films and then some, I'll put it that way. So it's neat to see him even um, challenge himself as a filmmaker and do something even bigger and different. It's amazing to watch something like Bottle Rocket and then watch something like Grand Budapest Hotel, which is, I believe, mm-hmm. the most recent thing. Well... Isle of Dogs, I guess, but I mean, in terms of live action proper, and it's 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 amazing because you can literally with every film watch him grow into a more concentrated vision, visionary. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's just like, but each one kind of has its own thing, but it just gets more and more. So even if you go back and watch the Royal Tenenbaums, which still feel feels like a Wes Anderson film, but it feels very different than a Moonrise Kingdom or a Grand Budapest Hotel, in my view. You know, there's mm-hmm. he just gets, like, more quirky and more meticulous and more, you know, colorful in some cases, or, what you know, uh, there's a lot yeah. to him. So everything you just said is very intriguing to me because 
the, though there is a visual style to his films and there is, um, you know, that type of humor or whatever, the color palette, whatever those things, those aren't really what draw me to his films all the time. You know what I mean? I mean, those are awesome bonuses, yeah. of course, but everything you just said is very, like, the fact that he would do something in black and white excites me a lot, actually, because that's, like, mm. very interesting to me. Um, the, the humor is on point. It's no secret, like you said, with Isle of Dogs, he's been attracted to different forms of animation. You will see different forms of animation in the film as well. So it's, um, it's like, everything that he's he's he loves and, and does well or wants to experiment with is probably even probably the most experimental of his films as well. So yeah. And, and, and it works well with the, um, with, with the theme of the, the newspaper too, of the publication. All right. I'm looking forward to that. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go down the line of like these top titles real quick. I'm assuming you've yeah. seen all of these. So I have, uh, which is, which is great. Again, yeah. it's last year, like me catching up on the Oscar stuff. It was like, Oh, I just felt overwhelmed and I didn't get to see a lot of stuff this year. I felt like it's a super ahead of the curve. So yeah, hit, hit me. I'll awesome. be glad to tell, talk through stuff. Tell us a little bit about King Richard. I actually don't even know much. I know the title, but I know nothing about yeah. it. Tell so us this is the magic this. at Telluride. So at Telluride, it's like, we talk about this at Heartland too. It feels like a summer camp. There's a lot of filmmakers, but Telluride feels like a smaller regional film festival with these monster titles and studios, people walking around. So I was at a screening early. You essentially get a waitlist pass and you can come back in a half an hour. So I waited in line to get like a cinnamon roll. And behind me was um, our contact for Neon and Tom Quinn, the entire head of Neon. And he just talked that night before he saw King Richard and loved it. And like, usually when you're a studio head, you promote your film, but I like went back to his Twitter feed and he was like praising King Richard as well too. So it was really cool. So I think, Every time you kind of see a biopic enter the stratosphere of potential Oscar contender, you're like, how is this going to be treated? And I think we'll talk about Spencer in that regard, too. I think you have expectations, perhaps, from a still, a preview, a trailer, whatever that might be. And this film, I think this film could have easily fallen into paint-by-numbers territory, but it did not. I mean, it's a huge triumph. even. In the trailer, uh, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, saying the name of the film was like, you know, being an inspiration for young black girls around the world you know, was is phenomenal and it's true. So it's interesting because, you know, maybe, um, you know, Richard Williams is like, if you follow stuff over the years, maybe is this this guy pushes kids too far? Was it just his plan? Um, the film goes into that and it does it really well. Venus and Serena are EPs on the film, too. So I know there was like some hubbub on film Twitter where people like to complain and stuff too, but I will put all of those things to rest <laughs> and tell you it's a phenomenal movie. If you can't take it from me, take it from Tom Quinn. Um, but we are really excited to have it. And we were talking with Warner Brothers um, about it. You know, this is our 30th anniversary. What's a film that embodies Heartland up until this point, this moment, and then the future kind of where we want to go. This is the perfect film for that. So I think it's, you know, talk about, um, the early things are hard living, like the triumph of the human spirit, you know, um, the, the defiance of odds, a great story-based film that can make a difference. Great performances. Um, Will Smith is um, one of the early front runners for best actor, um, which you can even just see from the trailer as well, too. It, it follows into the film. It's a great movie. Um, and we're really excited to have it. I think it skipped Tiff. So sorry, Tiff. 
Um, Heartland got it. Um, yeah. Interesting. I think it, it, it's a Telluride, and then I think it's going to be at uh, Chicago and us. So we're one of the first fests in the world to have this film. So we're really, really excited. Yeah, this is one of those movies where the cast is really what's going to kind of draw at least a casual mm-hmm. moviegoer because uh, uh, Reynaldo Marcus Green is the filmmaker, relatively unknown. I don't know any of the f- other films that he's done uh, based on at least IMDb, uh, so I never saw those. But the cast, like you said, is Will Smith, Dylan McDermott, uh, John Bernthal, who played Punisher in the Daredevil series yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, there, there's like a good cast here. Like it has some good bones. Um, I'll be really it's good. It's a great ensemble film. I, th- I don't think sometimes, you know, th- there might be in, in a uh, ensemble film, somebody might, might stick out, but it's really, it's from top to bottom. It's, it's, it's solid ensemble. Yeah. Well, you- and Chris Bowers does the music too. And, oh. um, and Chris Bowers, you know, he, um, he was in the, it won an award at Indie Shorts and it was Oscar nominated, but uh concerto is a conversation as well that focused on him. Um, and his father, which was really cool. So, I mean, he's a great composer, and his, his score is phenomenal, too, in the film. Yeah. Well, you brought this up uh, a little bit earlier. You talked about uh, Spencer, which is yeah. interesting. It's by the, it's by uh, Pablo Lorraine, and uh, he made the film with Gil Garcia Bernal back in 2012, No, which was kind of like uh, mm-hmm. a lot of buzz kind of in the underground, so to speak. And then he did Jackie, which had Natalie Portman doing... Uh, mm-hmm. The whole uh, Jackie Kennedy, Jackie, yep, and, yeah. and and all that stuff, which is uh, pretty awesome. Spencer uh, stars uh, Kirsten, uh, Kristen, rather Kristen Stewart, um, yeah. and we'll Timothy get to Kirsten later. In it. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> so we'll get to Kirsten later with yeah. the power of the dog. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do that too. I have to catch myself. Like Kristen, Kristen. Yeah. No, yeah, so, yeah. I, I flip them sometimes. I'm not great <laughs> at that. But Kristen Stewart, Timothy Spall are in it. Uh, yeah. This is this is about. Uh, uh, why can't I think of it? Um, yeah. Princess Diana. So it's, it's Princess Diana. Yeah, but thank again, you. I, was I, like, th- I think the stills and stuff too, and it feels like there have been a lot of Princess Diana related films, the Queen TV shows, things of that nature too. But again, Pablo Lorraine and his his style and his approach, they are pushing this. This is a fable, almost a ghost story. This is um, almost kind of like, I don't want to say like, you know, kind of like Lincoln, where you are looking at a pivotal moment in the life of a person. It's not a sweeping biopic of their life. And in this film, it's Christmas 1991, um, when the relationship between Princess Diana and the Royals is probably at a boiling point. Um, Obviously, we all know the story. She came from um, non-royal means, um, kind of that, you know, magic Cinderella story, if you will. And there's a lot of... um, tradition and secrecy in order with the royal family. And this is kind of the tipping point, you know, um, an affair with Camilla and other things too. And a lot of these things are really addressed in a subdued, nuanced way within the film. But this is really a piece about um, more of an insular focus on Princess Diana portrayed by Kristen Stewart, almost a psychological piece where there are elements, I would say a black swan in the shining in the film. Um, and there's even a scene with the cooler that made me think of um, um, Grady interacting with Jack Torrance in The Shining to an extent, too. So there are a couple scenes where, um, yeah, there's some fantastical things that happen within the film um, as well, too. But it's done really well. And so seeing the film, I saw the North American premiere at Telluride. It just had its Venice premiere. And if you followed the Venice stuff, everybody's like, Fill in the blank movie, got an eight minute standing O at Venice. Oh, amazing. <laughs> um, but the early word out of Venice was fantastic for this film, too. 
So I came into this film not having seen it yet, going into the Telluride with high expectations, but honestly, the film exceeded those expectations too. So again, if if you're just looking for a, a surface level, I know what's going to happen type movie, it's probably not the movie for you. But that being said, it's going to surprise a lot of people. And it's probably it's one of my favorite movies of the year. It really is. So I had the opportunity to meet uh, Pablo and Kristen at Telluride. And I think it was kind of cool because, you know, like the standing ovation, I think I was one of the first regular human beings to kind of give feedback. <laughs> and I think they appreciated that. <laughs> which is cool, but Kristen shared she loved um, the scenes with the kids, um, you know, um, during the film and that dynamic, which those are very tender moments in the film too, that that do pull her back and center her um, throughout the movie. But yeah, it, it's just, it's really well done. Kristen Stewart gives a great performance. Um, she was fantastic in person. People keep asking, you know, you know, was she kind of eccentric? She was great. I think, again, I think that's the reputation we're trying to throw around at Heartland that we are regular people who love movies. And I think it shows when we meet big people who might seem larger than life, but uh, just like to talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing with yeah. Kristen Stewart, that's, that's weird to me is, and but I understand it, but a lot of people just think of her as the twilight girl and it's like, no, like, yes, she's typecast in a lot of things, but dude, I could give you like a handful of movies, watch them. She's awesome. And this oh, looks yeah. like one of them because, the dude, the trailer for this is awesome. I encourage everybody to go check out the Spencer trailer because, like, when I saw that, I was like – because there's a site that I go to for trailers, and I keep up with it every few days. I'll go watch everything that I missed mm -hmm. over there that was posted last few days. And, uh, yeah, whenever I saw this, I didn't even know what it was about. It just said Spencer. I had no idea. So I, And I, I yeah. try not to also. I love just going into it not knowing and learning. And it was about Princess Diana. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. This is like a biopic. It just feels so different. You're spot on. Like, I mean, of course, I haven't seen it, but I'm saying based on what I imagine, like, it, it sounds spot on. But, but it's weird. Again, us being around the same age, I grew up, my mom was infatuated with Princess Diana. I remember getting, like, people in Us Weekly and stuff, too. And knowing more and seeing more about Diana through these paparazzi photos and even like a princess Diana beanie baby that I did the actual person. And then as you grow up, you learn more about the different stuff. But I think it's, it's interesting to, to have grown up with that stardom perspective to an extent, but just knowing the humanitarian side and being a parent now too, and stuff too. Um, yeah. I, I love the movies that take you on these introspective journeys. And this is a great one too. And when we talk about, come on, come on, that's probably the top introspective, um, existential film of the year well, <laughs> for me <laughs> just so you are uh appeased here that's the next film i actually have up Perfect. here and i want to say mike mills uh, he did a film that back in uh 2005 i was a huge fan of i i might even still have it back here on the movie shelf it was called Thumbsucker. this is back whenever indie movies this is like still before juno which I i'm not saying mm -hmm. anything good or bad about juno but that is like kind of my marker where like quote-unquote indie movies just went bad again i'm not saying juno's bad that's up to your opinion <laughs> but like before that yeah. you had like stuff like the squid and the whale thumb sucker uh you had all of these um like just kind of little independent films that were so awesome and there was almost like a uh like a vibe across them all you know what i mean because even like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind was felt that way and was like mm -hmm. kind of treated in that kind of indie 
indie vibe. And so, like, Thumbsucker, it was, it's funny every time I see this because I always forget Mike Mills did it. I'm like, what else did he do? He did Beginners. There's something else I know. And it's this random, this random movie that I still need to go back and watch because when I was a little younger and I was first getting into film, like I said, 2003, the, around this time, actually, in 2003 is whenever I got into film. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, this was only a couple years after that. And I remember going to a blockbuster, seeing this on the wall, the cover looks like your typical indie film from the early to mid two thousands. So I was like, I'll just buy, I'll just get it, you know? And I just rented it and it was a whole lot of fun. So, uh, he did a thumb sucker. He did beginners, which has, um, Oh my God, Ewan McGregor. Uh, and who is it? Christopher? No, Christopher Plummer. Yeah. It's Christopher Plummer. Yeah. I'm terrible Mm -hmm. with names, but the point is, uh, that film is great. That's a movie I forget about. And then every time Mm -hmm. I see it, I'm like, God, I love this movie. Yeah. Like right now, I feel like, oh, it's probably pretty good. But I guarantee if I watched it again, I'd love it. But anyways, the thing about Come On, Come On that's cool, it's by, it's uh, written and directed by Mike Mills, uh, but it has Joaquin Phoenix in it. Now, I'm a huge Joaquin fan, okay? Big fan. So this is interesting. Uh, it's in black and white. Tell us a little bit about Come On, Come On. Yeah, it's kind of the year of black and white. You know, uh, Belfast is in black and white. A lot of French Dispatch, this film as well, too. Um, tragedy Macbeth. So, so it's a big black and white year too but yeah come on come on um I'll, I'll put it this way we got an early screening with some of our staff being the artistic director and the movie guy might have a seemingly deeper appreciation for s- certain types of films and stuff too so usually if you start a movie in black and white for, for a group of people who are not into a lot of movies and stuff too who knows what path you're going to go down and how they're going to react to it too but after the lights came up on this film our staff all looked at each other. We had the same experience um, and it was great. So that's really exciting to kind of hear too. And like, you know, some of these other movies, Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor, but I think he has such a diverse slate of performances that like hearing like the new Will Smith movie versus like a Joaquin Phoenix has a different flavor and feel to it um, as well too. So I feel like this movie is like the little engine that could this year. Granted it's with A24 and stuff too. But again, it's more of a low-key relationship movie between uh, Joaquin Phoenix and his nephew, played by Woody Norman, who is phenomenal. He's been in Poldark. Uh, he's in The Current War, Benedict Cumberbatch's son. But this is like his break breakout role. He is phenomenal. He's already getting some early Oscar buzz um, for supporting actor for the film, too. But yeah, Joaquin Phoenix plays like a radio show host with kind of like an NPR type thing. And they're doing this assignment where they're going and recording kids and their experience um, in different communities and stuff too. And um, Gabby Hoffman, who plays um, his, his sister um, needs Joaquin Phoenix to help him watch her kid, his nephew. And so it's kind of, he's thrust into this life and he's watching him and it's just this beautiful existential journey um, kind of set with, these other recordings of kids and then it's actually real life kids too, that are kind of giving these thoughts. But I mean, it's like one of these great films coming out of the pandemic, you know, we're still in it, but you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and going through all of this stuff too, where it just hits you and the performances are raw. Um, the dialogue doesn't hold back. Sometimes you have like kid actors and there's like really kind of, you know, um, starchy dialogue and stuff too. And it's not that way. I mean, there's some really powerful moments in this film. Um, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of people and I hope the momentum keeps growing. It had some of the best word of mouth. 
um, at Telluride. I think if people at Telluride were like, what movie should I see? And I was like, come on, come on. Like, it was just like a knee-jerk <laughs> reaction for people to check out this film. Because um, it feels like a lot of films are getting, uh, you know, almost instant notoriety too. But it's phenomenal. Um, I love it. And yeah, we're excited to have it. We're playing it on the uh, first Sunday of the fest, October 10th. Yeah, we, we um, Joe Shearer and I, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we did our uh, 2021 movie preview. We did two episodes of our top 10, and then the very following one, we did a preview, and we did our top five most anticipated films. And had I known about Come On, Come On at that time, which I didn't, this probably would have been on it, because seeing Mike Mills work, because his films can be so personal and demand so mm-hmm. much of their actors, and, of course, Ewan McGregor knocks it out of the park and Beginners, but I can only imagine what Joaquin Phoenix is going to do here. Uh, I am super excited about this one. Uh, definitely yeah. go watch and the they, trailer for they, this, too. Yeah, they just... It's, it's, it's kind of funny seeing these films early and then seeing how they do the trailer and stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, but the trailer is great. Uh, but the, you, you, you hear this classical music playing throughout the trailer, and that's also in the film. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's great. And it even deals with mental health issues as well and coping. And I think just relationships in general, you know, how much you give, how much you don't give trust and a lot of great themes. It'll, it'll be on your mind probably more so than many other films you've seen in recent years. Yeah. So I want to go back before I continue on this little short list of movies. I want you to kind of tease us with a bit. Did you mention Macbeth earlier as a black and white? I did. So every year, is this the Joel Cohen film? It is. And you know what? Oh, I wanted God. to bring this, I wanted to bring this up. I was almost gonna have this be the teaser for the show, but I have a Cohen Brothers story. Um I would love to share. Go for it. But the tragedy of Macbeth is uh Joe Cohen going solo um with Francis McDormand, um, Denzel Washington, and it's premiering or had just premiered or is gonna be premiering at the New York Film Festival. Sometimes studios can be super exclusive with films, and as of right now, that's the only festival that is playing the film. So Which I festival? have tried a New York film fest in YFF. Okay. Yeah. Cause but, that was um, the, the tragedy of Macbeth was on my top five most anticipated. I just mentioned Have you haven't yeah. seen it yet. I have not seen Dang. it. All the reactions have been phenomenal and I would not expect anything less from, um, a 24 and the team that is on the film and Joel Cohen, but quick side story. Um, my claim to fame, and I actually pitched this in my email to see if it would sway the opinions of um, the folks to get the film. But my mom, a lot of her family is from Minnesota, and her aunt lives in Minneapolis. So when she and her sisters would go and play with her cousins, they'd go to Minneapolis and they play around the neighborhood. They have like a tree fort hideout. They um, played with the Cohen brothers. They were in the same neighborhood. Whoa. And even when they were small kids, the Cohen brothers and my mom knew them as kind of these two kind of eccentric kids that were kind of beat to their own drum. So <laughs> that, that's awesome. That's my connection to the Coen brothers. And it's just kind of a fun thing. Uh, you're, you're one degree, you're one degree of separation. Exactly. Yeah. God. So lucky bastard. All right. So <laughs> the next film I want to talk about is, uh, is Jane Campion's the power of the dog. Another film that's on my list of stuff that I like, it's kind of a higher priority, yes. but Real quick, this is uh, Jane Campion. She made The Piano probably most famously from 1993. Uh, You know, she did uh, The Portrait of a Lady. She did a a miniseries called Top of the Lake, which I have, I keep wanting to watch and I just never get around to it, but it's one I'm excited to watch. But The Power of the Dog is a film like, 
I don't know, maybe three or four times a year up until about this point. Um, I'm always going through best films of 2021 or whatever so far, and I'm trying to find like what people are talking about. I start building a yeah. list so around this time I can start cramming stuff I missed or I know that certain things are about to come out. The Power of the Dog has been on my radar for quite some time now. And, uh, yeah, Jane Campion, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Kirsten Dunst, going back to my mm -hmm. Kirsten uh, faux pas earlier, but it works here. Uh, they're running this. Jesse Plemons, which he's so good, this mm -hmm. guy. Oh, my gosh. And I yeah. thought he was great as Philip Seymour Hoffman's son in The Master because they yeah. actually almost look believably, um, <laughs> yeah, I you know, yeah. that, but but there's a great cast here. Keith Carradine and Francis Conroy. Cody Smith uh, McPhee is great. Just about um, to say, yep. Yep. Tell, tell um, us about even, uh, Thomas and McKenzie as well, who is the great New Zealand um, actress who's been in Leave No Trace. She has a small part in the film, but she's great too. But yeah, this film, I'll, I'll put it this way. It, it's a powerhouse and you sh it should be on your top list to see. Um, because sometimes there is a divide between audience members and critics. The film not only won the director award at Venice, but it was second to Belfast and the People's Choice Award at TIFF. And that tells you a lot. If a film has that viability, the Academy members take that into consideration too. Obviously box office things are still up in the air, which used to be a big factor too. But the film is phenomenal. It's really good. Um, and, you know, articles I've talked about it, redefining the Western. It's set in 1920s Montana, but filmed um, in New Zealand. And um, Jesse Plemons and Benedict Cumberbatch are brothers um, who their parents passed away and they both, Benedict plays Phil. He's more of the man's man rancher. There's a scene where he bare hand castrates a bull. Um, he's like roping these uh, cattle. He's going off doing his thing. He's like the head of this band of um, of cowboys, essentially, too. Jesse Plemons, you know, he has the suit. He kind of takes care of the, the business side of things as well, too. Um, and then he meets, uh, uh, you know, Kirsten Dunst's character and they get married. Cody Smith McPhee is, is her son. And there's this rivalry, rivalry between them. And you will see that in the trailer um, from like this kind of whistling and this music. There's a lot of these really deep themes. Like Spencer, it's a psychological film, but almost this competition and pushing people to the edge. Um, and there are, are some LGBTQ um, themes within the film, too, that are addressed really well, especially for the time period. Um, the film is based on a book, but I think, from what I understand, it really elevates the source material than this book that's nearly forgotten. But it's done really well. So, um, yeah, I, again, I'm trying to find words that don't spoil too much, too, but it's a powerhouse. And again, this is the year of Benedict Cumberbatch. He won a TIFF Tribute Award. We have him in The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, where he plays a more eccentric artist, uh, more likable character. This one, he's definitely more um, of this grumpy rancher who obviously is still holding emotions from a relationship um, in the past and stuff, too. But yeah, it's it's an amazing film. Um, it's been a long time since Jane Campion made a feature film, and she um, she delivered for <laughs> yeah. that way. But I, you know, I saw uh, an early early screener, and then I saw it in the big screen with the cast and crew, um, and it was it was great. Yeah, it, it's definitely it, it's going to go far um, this year, and uh, deservedly so. Man, yeah, I am I am very excited about it. I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Jane Campion, so. 
Uh, and it looks like uh, Netflix is putting that out. So I'm assuming, well, at least, uh, you know, for anyone who can't make it, they'll at least probably be able to see it on Netflix eventually, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I have to I have to give a hand to Netflix. They also have the hand of God. Um, and, you know, these Netflix is really chasing best picture. And that's not a secret. And I think this year, especially with Power of the Dog, this is not like a typical prestige picture. You know, there's some challenging stuff within the film, but I think the taste of the Academy and viewers has progressed too. even like Heartland is a kind of a microcosm of that, too. And it's a very smart film, but it's a it's a it's a very um, smart and distinguished as opposed to stereotypical prestige type film. I think it's almost redefining prestige plus, if you will, because prestige has kind of been like a bad word when it comes to Oscar stuff, but this is, this is good. And this is, this is next level. So um, I think out of all the years, Netflix has had uh, potential best picture stuff. This is, they have a really great shot with this film and it's, it, it was a surprise in a great way. Yeah. Awesome, dude. I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm actually going to jump to the next one that you talked about. I have two more for you here. Uh, it's uh, uh, Paolo Sarantino's the hand of God. For those of you who don't know Sarantino, uh, he did The Great Beauty and Youth. Uh, the Great Beauty in 2013 was a huge success. This was like a big award snagger, you know, uh, lots of buzz. That's how I heard of it. I still have yet to see Youth. I never saw it when it came out in 2015, <laughs> and I would love – I still want to go back. I forget about it a lot, but I love that it's it's uh, just like these two old dudes. You know what I mean? Uh, hold on. I got <laughs> yeah. I to gotta, I gotta look this up real quick because – oh, yeah. It's Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel. I just love that these two guys <laughs> That's a good pair. Uh, yeah. are together. It's the best. But uh, tell us a little bit about the hand of God, though. I'm I'm excited to you know see what Sorrentino does. Yeah, I mean almost almost kind of like Belfast too. It's like you know it's kind of like this love letter to youth and growing up, where it's you know it's a semi autobiographical film about him being a young um, you know young Italian being a soccer fan. Uh, becoming a man in multiple regards, as you'll see in the film too. Um, but it's so it has these the pathos of the film. It's a roller coaster. You have these funny comedic celebrations where there's like a family gathering and they're waiting for people to come and they're making fun of them. To um, tragedy happening, losing losing family members. Um, it just it's just this triumphant journey, and even like we were talking about earlier in the conversation too about being a potential filmmaker. And his journey getting to that point, too. So it's one of those films where it reminds me of like a classic early like TCM film where you blink or you, you know, look away to get a sandwich or a drink for five minutes. You missed a lot of the film. There's so much packed in this film, but it's a great celebration. Um, and we're really excited to have it um, at Heartland, too. But um, yeah, it won the Silver Line at Venice. Um, I don't think they've announced the Italian entry for the Academy, but it's got to be one of the, the two front excuse me, front runners at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great pick. And, and I, I get really hyped whenever I see like filmmakers that I really like that they aren't the Chris Nolans. Right. But they're like, they're big to me. And Sorrentino yeah. kind of earned that reputation with the great beauty, like getting just such buzz. And I'm always now just excited to see whatever he's coming up with. So, uh, I'm excited about that. Um, uh, the last film I want to talk to you about, uh, this is off of like the kind of main roster. This is something that you mentioned earlier and I actually heard about it first from Sundance. I can't remember if it was in my top five most anticipated, mm. but I'm a huge fan of bummer movies. I always say, take <laughs> me to bummerville. I'm happy to go. 
this yeah. film is Mass by Fran Kranz. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, who's mostly mm. known for acting, but this is the first film. And the cast is so great. Uh, it was written and directed by Fran Kranz, and it's uh, Jason Isaacs, uh, Martha Plimpton, uh, Ann Dowd, and uh, Reed Burney. Ann Dowd is so great all the time. Okay, just all the time. I love her so much. Can you tell us a little bit about Mass? Yeah, it did premiere at Sundance. Um, the first weekend of Heartland, it's opening in New York and L.A., so we caught it at just the right time before it goes wide. Um, and it, it is, it's about two couples who were both affected in the same situation uh, by gun violence at a school. And they're meeting, uh, there was litigation, and they're meeting off the record couple and couple um and they're just talking through a lot of different things um so i mean there's just raw elements of humanity um again being a parent you don't have to be a parent but it's just it's the it's a tour de force performance um bleaker is going to be pushing all four for supporting um actor and actress and they're phenomenal and let's just say we haven't announced this yet but we are going to have a lifetime achievement honoree and one of them might be in this film um which we'll announce later too, which is going to be great. But um, yeah, amazing performances in this film. Uh, I mean, I guess I, I would put it out there as um, one of the best, if not the best ensemble uh, piece, period. I mean, it's just, it's so intimate, and especially from a first-time director uh, from, from Fran as well. It's just, it's phenomenal. So well, it, um, it looks to me with, with Fran being an actor, a lot of times when you get actors moving, not always, there are exceptions, of course, but a lot of times when you get actors moving into the director's chair, they're often like actors' movies, as uh, <laughs> as Christopher Lloyd would say, they're actors' movies. You know, these movies where the performances are really driving, that's kind of the focus, you're getting this thing. And I get that from the trailer. Would you agree with something like that, that it really, oh, this is all about the performance? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. And, and there's things too, like Martha Plimpton, you know, she was the girl with the glasses and Goonies. Like if you don't remember that too. So I think that's, that's, if you heard the name or if you don't know her name, you saw her like, Oh yeah, she's in Goonies. So, I mean, it's phenomenal too, to see that. But Jason Isaacs, he, I mean, national treasure doesn't make sense. He's a worldwide treasure. I mean, he's just, he gives 110% in everything he's in. I, honestly, one of the best living actors out there. Um, he's just phenomenal in this film too. Yeah, he is so good. But yeah, this is one. I mean, you got to see it. Um, I'm so glad that we can have it um, in, in time for the best. Yeah, for but, those yeah, who... Bleaker Street is a phenomenal distributor. They're amazing to work with, um, and we're really glad to have the film. Well, for those of you who don't know Jason Isaacs by name, he is Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter films. Um, yeah, that'll pretty much cover it. Uh, no, he's fantastic. I love that guy. Yeah, he's been in Star Trek recently. Yeah, um, so much. He was in uh, the OA on Netflix. I mean. He, just just look him up. I mean, he's, he's yeah, he's great. He's just in so much, and he's so good. So my final question for you before we start wrapping this up here um, is, and I will let you have more than one, but no more than three. <laughs> what is your favorite film you've seen so far? Oh, wow. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be the favorite, but what what's... If one to three movies, what are some of the ones that you personally, they impacted you regardless of how they fit into a festival or anything? Yeah. I mean, from this year's lineup specifically. From this year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, honestly, I, I mentioned it before. Come on, come on. Was that 
is an unexpected gem that we saw it, you know, the studio wanted to talk about it. Uh, we all experienced the same thing. Um, yeah. And it's, it's phenomenal. I think that one um, definitely peeled back the onion multiple layers. Um, and it's, I'm really excited for people to experience that film as well too. Um, honestly, Spencer, the power of the dog are both great. I went into both of those as well. Um, and, and King Richard, I think if I had to name some, so that's, that's a neat thing too. It's like, it's always great when you can get a studio title, but this year too, I mean, Bill Fast connected with me as well. We didn't talk about Bergman Island. You asked about that too. I love that. It's a different change of pace. I love it. It's, it's a movie within a movie in some regards too. Yeah. I love how that worked out. But I mean, this year, I would say just the award contenders in the lineup. It's not only films I believe in, but there's so many good films. Like this is probably one of the best years I can remember for film and even like screening certain films or whatever too. It's one thing to say, oh, hey, we got this film from XYZ Distributor, but to really believe in the films and love them, uh, I can, you know, pun intended, wholeheartedly stand by um, these films. I'm really excited. And I think, you know, from being in my basement, watching some screeners, getting to go to Telluride, I'm so thrilled to bring these to Indiana with, with an audience. I really am. Yeah. Oh, man. Dude, I am hyped about this. I can't wait for our listeners to go watch some of these trailers from some of these movies that maybe they haven't gotten around to seeing trailers for, or YouTube hasn't harassed us with tons of ads <laughs> for them yet. Yeah. Um, so definitely these, especially these last few that we talked about, the ones that, uh, that were just mentioned, um, definitely go check out these trailers, hop on YouTube or, yeah, or, or, or go, go the Google machine and find their website and just find out what's going on. Because these are yeah. like, these are the movies For that, sure. as you were saying, uh, like pointing out these ones that are like, if you can see anything, see some of these, a lot of these are at the top of my list. So I'm glad that. You know, we're overlapping a lot here. Um, so, yeah, uh, just just to kind of finish off here, anything else you want to say? And if you want to pitch anything, here's your chance. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, heartlandfilmfestival.org to get tickets. It's easy to see final films that are announced in the lineup as well. There's tickets online. These big event films, special presentations events are only in person, but we have over 70 films you can check out online. If you've never been to a fest, don't feel overwhelmed. You can buy a ticket for one thing. Don't feel like you have to buy a pass. You have to dedicate 11 days. Go at your leisure and just experience the fest. We will have filmmakers coming in from all around the country. The world is harder right now with uh, border stuff going on too. But we have dozens of filmmakers coming in uh, to meet you. Um, we have a lot of other great films. National Geographic has four amazing films that we're playing with. Uh, they're playing with us as well. They're just really good films. And again, don't, you know, these are the big films that, are, again, are the gateway drugs to a lot of the other programs um, as well. But definitely explore the lineup, explore the website. We have trailers for a lot of films too. It's fun to see these films, the big films first, but it's also fantastic for you to discover films, meet filmmakers, and be able to say that you were on the grand le level with a lot of these really neat films. So yeah, definitely explore and hopefully, you know, um, you know, we all have Wanderlust right now, too, and the festival helps you uh, mitigate that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, I'm hyped for the 30th year anniversary of Harlem Film Festival. Thank you so much, Greg Sorvig, for 
coming and talking with us about movies, giving us a little insight, pulling back the curtain a bit on how festivals oh, work and, and all of that. It's been an absolute pleasure, buddy. All right, awesome. Thanks a lot. Wow. I really loved this episode, to be honest. I had a great time talking with Greg. I got to rewatch Bad Education. Had a great time with that movie. Love it. I got to watch uh, this movie Nick suggested. Thank you so much again, Nick. That was awesome. I actually really liked The Beast of War. Again, I don't think it's a great film, but man, for being just a movie I'd never heard of, I had such a good time with it. Strongly encourage you to check that out on Amazon. And then uh, Dear Evan Hansen, uh, part of me, I'm glad I saw it, and part of me is just wishes I could have skipped it. Not a big fan, to be honest, and I like musicals, and this one just kind of let me down. And part of what let me down is because, as I said before, there are parts of it that I want to like, and I just can't. And it bothers me because it's like, man, you had something here, and you butchered it. Anyways, I'm going to stop. So next week, uh, I'm going to have Joe and I are going to invite our friend from the Midwest Film Journal, uh, Evan Dossie, on. Uh, We're going to have a fun conversation about horror movies because it's the first um, episode in Horror Month on October 5th. So we're going to be talking about horror movies. We're going to be talking about their the Midwest Film Journal column called No Sleep October. We're going to talk about some history with it. And uh, we'll just be talking about horror movies. It'll be a fun time. It'll just be a kind of a general conversation with our friend Evan, who's also good friends with Greg, who was on this episode. I mean, you know, the whole web of Indiana film journalists and film community folks. Uh, I, I just I just love how close-knit it can be. And then uh, the following week, on the 12th, I think it is. I'm actually going to look this up while we're talking. Uh, yeah, on the 12th, uh, Joe and I are going to be looking at 70s horror movies. And Joe, because he's a freaking slacker, hasn't sent me the, uh, <laughs> the film that he wants to do. But I have submitted mine. And it is the controversial... 1971 film that was banned from like every country imaginable and still to this day has not been released uncut and is uh, the distribution company is Warner Brothers and they have refused to let people even purchase the rights to it because it's too fucked up that movie is called The Devils Ken Russell's uh, 1971 film I'm very excited about this this was hard for me to find um, because I didn't want to watch the the cut censored like DVD version, so finding a copy was actually pretty difficult for me. Um, but I made sure that Joe and I had a copy, so we're at least going to cover that. We may not that might be all we do because there's so much to that movie. That might be the full hour. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, that will be really fun, and we will see how that goes. So on that note, I appreciate you folks listening. This has been a long episode, I know. Uh, But I appreciate you sticking with us. Thank you so much. And hey, good night. Good luck. Take it easy. Take it easy.